What's happening, people? This is Nick Muniz, a familiar voice to some, but a new voice to many out there, I am hoping, and your newest host to the hottest podcast on the block. This is Nick's Nonfiction, a monthly book review of the most relevant, brain-tickling, thought-provoking, inflammatory books, in my opinion, about nonfiction topics, science, philosophy, psychology, health, anything you can think about. We're going to be doing it here this month, this episode, January 2019. We're going to be talking about Neil deGrasse Tyson, his newest bestseller, Accessory to War, the unspoken alliance between astrophysics and the military. That was a pretty good Neil deGrasse impression. Plenty more to come within the next hour. Next month, we're going to be doing Malcolm Gladwell, household name, his famous book, Outliers, A Story of Success. You're not going to want to miss that, and we're only getting better. We are here to grow, people. For those of you who have no idea who the hell I am, because I am carpet bombing random podcast sites about promotion and stuff for this bad boy, and it's worth it because I'm putting a lot of work into this show. My name is Nick Muniz, and I am just some 22-year-old dude that just graduated college with a tiny bit of experience in front of a microphone. (laughs) I um, worked at my college radio station, hosted a show for a couple years. Uh, A lot of people are familiar. We had a strong following from the Sunday Scaries podcast, which was throughout the year of 2017, a weekly positive news column, just around a half an hour show. That we went over, you know, all the feel-good stories throughout the week. Threw some humor in there, as always. And some scenarios for you guys to run through your head. What would you do if you were in this situation? You are not going to be able to sleep for a month after listening to this show. Because A, you're going to want to hear the next podcast. And B, you're going to be thinking about some creepy shit. <laughs> you're going to be thinking about some interesting thing that I planted a seed in your ma- in your mind for the next month. And then that's going to be sharing real estate with the next book, and the next book, and the next book. And we're doing it out here, baby. (laughs) A little bit more about myself. I hosted the podcast, the radio show. Uh, This past year, 2018, I started open micing out here in Denver. Really great arts community. Good place to start working on your craft, whatever it is. Nobody wants to hear this, but being a 22-year-old guy from college going into the real world, you get punched in the face and in the penis by the real world nobody cares dude <laughs> nobody cares it, it just you're bottom of the totem pole for like 60 years you gotta go until you're on and your stocks actually start paying off that's gonna be part of the <laughs> that's gonna be some of the books too we're gonna be talking about trading we're gonna get some invite advice there for you people and me too i need it i'm invested in tesla right now they're down they'll be back up so that's uh, made me a lot more comfortable in front of the microphone. Whatever the art is that you uh, you guys want to do out there, just you got to hammer at it. It's like going to the gym. Everybody's going to start with a certain muscle base, but you're only going to get stronger from there. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun, and it'll start paying off, especially if some of you guys out there like listening to this. I will really appreciate that. You don't have to let me know. You can do it in your room with the lights turned off, as embarrassed as you are, which you don't have to be, man. This is going to be some cool stuff, and I'm sure... A large percentage of people have already tuned out by now, but that's okay because they weren't going to learn anything anyway, right? We the real survivors. Welcome to the journey, baby. Um, (laughs) 
Some of you people know from my previous podcast, The Sunday Scaries, we would get a little political because it was a weekly news show, and I got kind of deep into some conspiracy theories, which are getting really popular right now on the internet, in the meme community, even on like dating apps. I'll see girls' profiles say like, I love conspiracy theories, we could talk all night about them, but I'm like the crazy cat dude who actually will read a book about I don't want to I don't want to throw off any listeners yet by naming any conspiracies but down the road we will do some talk on that but I will try to nix it from any shows as much as possible as well as politics but this month's book we have accessory to war which goes into the alliance between scientists and the military so there's going to be naturally a little bit of crossover there so this is a big boy it's not a safe zone or whatever those are called we're gonna tackle some ideas that are harder to listen to you know you hear the old thing is the glass half empty or is the glass half full one of them you're supposed to be a pessimist one of them you're supposed to be an optimist if you think about it the real thing is you're supposed to be able to hold two ulterior motives in your mind at the same time the glass is both half empty and half full So some of the shit we're going to be hearing about, you're not going to like. Some of the shit is going to be confirmation bias. Your brain is going to be flooding with endorphins and dopamine like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. This is great. And sometimes you're going to be me, me, me. But maybe that'll make you work out a little bit harder if you're listening to this at the gym. I don't think we have much further ado. This show is going to run, like I said, just on a monthly basis, and we're going to do some weekly business at the top, just going to catch up from the month, player to player, me to the listeners, whoever's out there who decides to tune in, Um, and then we are going to do a author review, so who's the guy that wrote the book that I wasted my time reading, what was his motivation to write this thing, some of their credits as to why they deserve to write a book. Because I've read, (laughs) in the past year, I've read some books that made me question how easy it is to be an author. And that's not a good thing when you are halfway through a book and you're like, this is some garbage. I feel like I could have wrote this better in a five-paragraph essay in fifth grade. But that happens. And that's why I'm starting off with a really strong book here by a guy with like nine doctorates. (laughs) So we'll get to that. And then we'll do a summary, review, and interpretation of the book, a couple of my favorite quotes, and a would you rather from the great book of questions, a gift that I received that is pretty thought-provoking, like I've been saying this week's, I'll tease it right now, at the end of the show, we'll be going over would you rather have to give up all computers, telecommunications, and motor vehicles, or give up one of your hands... Tough one. I know the answer. I'm not going to tell you guys, though. Just kidding. We're going to go over all the possibilities, pros and cons, past experiences I would have with these topics. And maybe you guys as well will be able to relate, I'm sure. Then we'll just talk a little bit about the book for the next month. And then we're going to be chilling. A quick little goodbye for everybody. Damn, see, my voice just went from already revved up to raspy because I drank like an entire pot of coffee because I wanted to bring the energy for this mother trucker. Neil deGrasse Tyson's Accessory to War, the unspoken alliance between astrophysicists and the military. For all of you who don't know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, 
This is when we're going over him. Neil deGrasse Tyson is best known for like his TV series on Fox. It was called Cosmos. He's coming out with a new season. It's called Cosmos Future Planets because he's an astrophysicist. He knows all about the potential worlds out there that we might try to colonize one day. Some of that is in this book we're going to be going over. Really cool stuff. So his TV show, millions of hits. People know him a lot from that. He has a mustache. He had a New York Times bestseller last year, a book called Astrophysicists for People in a Hurry, and now this new and now this new book that's popping off, Accessory to War. One of his first books, very popular, Death by Black Hole, a Netflix show, Universe, Questions of the Universe, something like that. And then since 1996, it said on his Wikipedia, he ran the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and has another show on Fox called star talk which also doubles as a podcast which is always in the top 100 charts and is now caught in the crossfires of a me too allegation so this is perfectly timely mr neil degrasse tyson having this book out and having some ladies interested in the success and also getting justice for whatever reason this point in time but you got to respect the uh, justice system he said he would agree with all further investigations into allegations and so we'll see how it goes but man knows how to write a book and then neil is also most well known as black science guy in the meme verse and probably when i upload this to like youtube just as the stock photos as the audio plays i'll, I'll put some dank memes in there yeah eventually years down the road this podcast will have some sort of video aspect and that's when we'll really be cooking but you know I'm in some janky attic for a 22-year-old that wants to do stand-up comedy to live. So, you know, you get what you pay for. <laughs> but I'm trying to give you the best show on my dime right now. And we doing it. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson is notable as a, like, a pompous dude. He's always, well, actually... You know that meme, the overweight guy at the computer? Well, actually... That is his first words out of the womb. He's always like correcting people on Twitter about sci-fi movies and talking shit to flat earthers, which go do your thing there, Neil. Um, he's a self-proclaimed science communicator, which is the same as Bill Nye, but Bill Nye was only like a mechanical engineer. He was never... Yeah, I'll say it. Bill Nye was never a damn scientist. But Neil deGrasse Tyson has um, all these doctorates that I'll list off in a minute. <laughs> and just, I don't know, because Bill Cosby also got some honorary doctorates, but those had to be rescinded. So did he really deserve those in the first place? But Neil's discovering planets and stuff out there, and that's that's kind of worthwhile. <laughs> He called himself a nerd growing up, but simultaneously always tells stories of how he was the state wrestling champion in New York. He believes in a benevolent higher power due to the amount of evidence in all religious stories. So he is a man of God in a very loose <laughs> term use of the words, I guess, as a scientist could be. But I guess what he means is just all the corroborating evidence of, like, near-death experiences hovering above your body and then seeing the, quote, light. So he just he's drawn an educated conclusion there. And then he spent his life in New York City, as we went over. And, excuse me, went to University of Texas, Texas-Austin, where he met his wifey. 
notable life events. Mr. Neal in 2001 won a Medal of Excellence at Columbia University. 2004, NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal. 2005, Science Writing Award Monthly Nat Geo Column. 2017, Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication. 2017, Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album Nomination for Astrophysicists. <laughs> That's how you know you're not smart enough to be one when you can't say the word. Astrophysicists for People in a Hurry. That's that bestseller last year. And then 2000, Sexiest Astrophysicist Alive in People's Magazine. Hey now, is that going to bite him in the ass 20 years later? Wait to see. 2004, 50 Most Important African Americans in Research Science. 2007, Harvard 100's Most Influential. 2007, Times 100. 2008, Discover Magazine selected him as 10 Most Influential People. And then 20 Honorary Doctorates. So I guess that's just on the Wikipedia page. I'm not going to read that shit out. Yeah, it's not that fun when you read out dates and numbers on a podcast, as you can see. But it was pretty hypnotic, wasn't it? 2001, 2004, 2005. See? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, this guy has been working a lot throughout his entire life. So he's got a book going on here that I'm excited to liberate the ideas of throughout the internet for you guys to chew on. A good mental steak to just sink your brain teeth into it's gonna be great and his influences to write this book maybe none other than the fact that he wrote that bestseller last year so he's trying to ride that wave and also he's been on uh like a lot of bigger radio shows as well because he's always in the top 100 with his show cosmos as well and also maybe because he's getting accused for sexual allegations, so he feels like he has to make more money so he can pay women off. But I don't know. We'll see, Mr. Neal. The knife is at your throat. And now my knife is at the binding of your book, Accessory to War. Ladies and gentlemen, hardcover. I don't mess around with that Kindle. None of that Audible. I read in the text, papyrus, like I'm in the year zero. And talking into a microphone like it's 21. So let's start this book, everybody. Accessory to War. We're going to... Nice little nine-chapter book. 400 pages if you actually want to read it. I actually gifted this book to somebody for Christmas. (laughs) I mean, I don't expect them to actually read it. Because that's like kind of the most dick gift to giving someone a book. It's like giving them work. But I guess on the flip side, they gave me a gift card last year where nothing in the store was the amount of the gift card so i actually had to spend more money but i'm slowly buying my listeners one at a time that means (laughs) someone's getting a copy of outliers next month check your mail all right (laughs) the book kind of starts talking about how neil is involved as the astrophysicist as a conduit to the military and then it goes to talk about military technology and how man have been arming themselves and then gets into the meat of the book in the second half which is all about like the satellites that are going up now who's going to be a threat in the cyber age and a bunch of really cool shit is there a baby crying i don't even have oh it's a cat yep that's my roommate's pain in the ass cat everybody i don't have access to his studio but that doesn't by any means lessen the quality of the show except for a faint crying feline in the background (laughs) i hope you love it chapter one store power 
first chapter is about space which makes for a nice cyclical shape for the book because it ends talking about all the satellites that china's putting up and how we should be scared on the very first pages neil talks about how in 2009 a russian satellite actually collided with a u.s satellite in low earth orbit so a russian a russian satellite military satellite crashed into american communications one and since it was a time of peace nothing happened we didn't hear about this on the media or anything because the war drum is only being beaten in the middle east right now but there was a collision in the low earth atmosphere in 2009 and in that month, it was actually in February, the Dow Jones closed at 8,000, whoever's into the stock market, which at the time was well above average. Whereas we know whenever there's like a Pearl Harbor or a Gulf of Tonkin event, the stock market crashes because people are not confident in our economy because they think we're about to go to war. But since the media didn't report on these satellite crashes, the Dow Jones was actually up, which goes to show that the market trends in the confidence of it. And like you can see right now in January 2019, it's down, baby. We're not doing good out there, whoever's invested. This was a cool thing for me, though, because within the first few pages, you got a real idea of, I don't know, you got a little in insight for your investing. Whereas, you know, if the media is going to report on what looks like a flag attack, then you need to uh, move a little bit of money around in your portfolio if you want to not lose a bunch. Neil goes on to talk about how this whole chapter is a little bit all over the place because, you know, with nonfiction books, you have to kind of give a little bit of a base before you can get into the real meat of it, which is one of the problems with these types of books. So that's why I'm going to be mowing through the earlier chapters. So Neil says uh, when communism was being demonized, he described that he was old enough to listen to all that stuff like McCarthyism. But then later when he saw images of dead Vietnamese kids and then he felt as it could have been his old child, own child there on the screen. And then he started to distance himself from the military industrial complex, which he does throughout the book. He tries to give himself a little bit of a cop out. And then further into the Vietnam protesting fiasco, he was a really smart guy throughout his whole life. He didn't just get smart when he was 50. And so when he used to watch the Vietnam protests, he said they were successful because the way that they framed it was support our troops, bring our boys home. That was like one of the really big slogans or no war for oil rather than today. How does an anti-war protest go? Um, jihadists are our brothers or like something stupid like that. But people aren't going to identify with the enemy. You got to make it about bring the boys home and keep them safe. You know, the boys, bring the boys home. <laughs> and so now we're in that war on terrorism. And at the same time, there's a culture war going on within our border. So our protests aren't even on point like the flower children our protests aren't even a thing now if you think about the women's march compared to like the vietnamese protests where people were getting sprayed by fire hoses and shit you you have a pussy on your hat that some 
deep state agent design to make you look like a big target on your head now. Congratulations. <laughs> and also now in 2018, you have to apply for a permit for a government protest, which they actually did in Charlottesville. Like they actually had their permit but things could still get out of hand. So I think we still got it in our bones if there was ever something to go down in America. America. And so then Neil talks about how, as I was just touching on, the decades following 9-11 was a feeding frenzy for um, military engineers, giant aerospace companies, mercenary companies, and then names that you will, if you don't know already, they're going to become very familiar, especially if you are in the stock market saving some money. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop, <laughs> Raytheon, General Dynamics, all of these companies grew by a 90% index in the decade following 9-11. And the Bush gang cashed out and Cheney with Halliburton stock funds. What a coincidence. And who benefited the most from the war on terror? Draw your own conclusions. This is coming from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like I said, the book has a real nice cyclical motion. He alludes to some like creepy stuff at the end. One of the quotes on the final pages is, think while it's still legal. Neil decided to go out of his way to quote that in his book that he compares to Sun Tzu's Art of War. He tries to call accessory to war, and he has a couple references to that throughout the book. He's really trying to drop some knowledge in this mother trucker. And in this first chapter, he's talking about Snowden, Edward Snowden, the guy who's in asylum right now over in, like, Russia for telling America what our tax dollars were going towards. Snowden, um, his take on it was Snowden thinking citizens should have the right to know what their government is doing. The U.S. taxpayers are putting $57 million every hour to the Department of Defense, and $11 million to education. Yeah. And then he ends the book with a very similar statistic about all of our hourly wages going towards the military state. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when you do the math, which we have at the end, and this is a tease for that now. Moving along. So Neil had to go around a little bit earlier in his career and and do speeches at military bases and and missile defense places. So he listed off in the book all of the Colorado entities that are for protection, including Peterson Air Force Base, Shribner Air Force Base, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station, North American Aero Defense Command, NORAD, which is where all the nukes are, Fort Carson, the U.S. Air Force Academy, the U.S. Northern Command, the Air Force Space Command, the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command, Army Forces Strategic Command, the Missile Defense Interrogations and Operations Center, the Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense, 21st Space Wing, 50th Space Wing, the 302 Airlift Wing. What the hell are these things? I shouldn't have just read all those, but um, there's a lot of cool shit that they do out here in Colorado. You can see F-16s fly over Denver just throughout the week. They're probably doing some sort of training exercises, but it's pretty damn loud. And if you go around like Center City, there's all these bunkers under the city and under the airport. So um, this is where the Missile Command is. When shit's going down, Neil says, come get your asylum. 
<laughs> right in the Rocky Mountains. We're going to live out those nukes together. Oh, boy. Accountability lies with the voters, in the words of Neil. So he says he's a scientist. He's going to go where the money is. You voted these people in, so they're going to give the money where they want to. And we voted for them to give the money where they want to because apparently we trust them. So accountability lies with the voters and their elected officials. And he got really hard protested in the early 2000s during like the Iraq war being on the council that he was. And so he tried to distance himself from the government, as I was saying before, and he keeps mentioning throughout the book. And he says he considers himself a libertarian now. He wrote his resignation when he saw the massive drone collateral damage under Obama. He also said, though, that this is the best gig in astrophysics that can be offered. So he'll find another way to reconcile his emotions, which to me, that sounds like money. For the little bit that's left in this chapter, he changes tones a bit about how the military use people in his field of astrophysics and engineering. The generals get to pick like it's a schoolyard pick because there's only a limited level of these geniuses who are good at like coding and just <laughs> measurements and all that other gay chemistry stuff. And so Neil is using as an astrophysicist, he's like just looking at other planets with electromagnetic microscopes and stuff. So they can see a way really far, but the generals just want to be able to turn those telescopes the other way and be able to look at like mud huts, <laughs> which is extremely useful having eyes in battle. But they're both pulling from the same pool of engineers. And he said from the inside, what it looks like is people join as space exploration pulling the young talent from all over the world some like chinese engineers who test out of their class even in china will come over here because we have nasa but then war is what really pays the bills so you can be assigned a really niche project that could be just some combustion engine that's going to be used in a rocket booster when it's really going to be used in a tank Speaking of his quote about war paying the bills, he then goes on to say, in 2006, half a dozen generals were coming out against the Bush administration and how they were handling the wars over in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they were clearly setting up for occupation rather than finding WMDs or whatever they told us it was, and spending $15 billion a month. I don't know if America was a business and we were all uh, partners in the business. I would say, why are we spending $15 billion a month over there looking for weapons and caves? But, you know, that's just my take on it. And uh, apparently half a dozen other generals. And I was able to come to that conclusion with bullshit <laughs> information on the internet. So, here we are. And these were the same rules of engagement as they did in Vietnam, where we couldn't advance any further north and eventually just set up for maximum occupation. Kind of like Germany and Japan. I mean, we won those wars, but the point is you go there, you set up a base, and then you never leave. Like Ramstein Air Force Base, or I don't even know the name of the one in Japan. And we have extremely good relations with those countries, so the point is we go there, 
and we never leave. Kind of like the Patriot Act, they take away your right of privacy, and then they never give it back. So once something's gone, you can't get it back with these type of things. And once we're in these wars, I'm thinking we're going to be there for a while. It was a miracle we got out of Vietnam. People had to run around the streets with their shirts off on acid to get the government's attention. And if we have to do that again, so God help me, I'll be the first streaker out there. So the USA now gets caught up in a two-decade unwinnable war while corporations develop like Snapchat and social media addiction. Neil goes on to talk about how China is just putting its nose to the fucking grindstone for the past 20 years and they're going to show up at our doorstep like, yo, where's that debt you owe me? (laughs) But we're just going to go deep into China later. That's if we don't go deep into China with our missiles when they ask us for that debt because they were coming. And finally, at the end of chapter one, his introduction to this book, he goes into a little bit more funding talk, saying how if Congress hadn't denied funding in 1993 for our particle accelerator, it would be five times bigger than that of CERN, which is the one in Europe where they discovered the God particle. So it's like a a track where they just shoot little atoms at each other and they explode so you could see what's made up of an atom and so over in europe a couple years ago they were able to discover this little particle inside of an atom which is like responsible for gravity so they kind of like discovered why gravity is part of the fabric of space-time and then it also gave them a model for the big bang so if we gave some of those Gave some of that 100 billion Pentagon budget over to some of these scientists. All that credit would have gone to great old America. And so where we are putting our money compared to where China is at the moment. China took down a satellite with a kinetic kill intercontinental ballistic missile. It's because it was like an old satellite that was going to go out of orbit. So they had to shoot it down so it would just burn up in the atmosphere. But they proved that they can hit a six-foot target at 500 miles. So that's not looking good if we were to ever be going to war with them. Whereas Russia tried to (laughs) resupply the ISS like two times this decade, and they failed both times. They couldn't even launch a rocket. That's a real big straw man that the media has been pushing when we could stomp on Russia with our left pinky toe if we had to in a war. They have some nukes, so we're going to take some casualties. Not everyone will make it, but we'll go on. I'll be in the bunkers out here. You guys could join me. That's chapter one. He calls that one a time to kill. Time to kill. Time to kill. Chapter two. Star power. This is how humans got in tune with the stars and then started being able to recognize ourselves. Looking up the stars, self-realization was one of the biggest things about making humans man, not just animals, because we were able to see our place in the universe. When you see the same stars every night, it's like noticing the stores that are on your block. Now you know where you live. So this and the next chapter talks about like telescopes, which were two of the slowest because it was kind of heavy on history. So I'll be blowing through these chapters quicker than the ones to come. If you guys have seen Neil deGrasse's um, TV show Cosmos, they would like go into a animated version of what the story is talking about. And then he'd go on to talk about the science of it is today and extrapolations into the future. And so these uh, chapters are kind of written like that. 
So he starts out, if it weren't for the suns and the moon cycles, just what humans are accustomed to living on Earth, biologists very well could have been responsible for labeling time whether it be by like heartbeat or your circadian rhythm or the growth of a tree or an ant colony because at times there were groups of humans that lived in caves they weren't able to see the stars or the sun and so they would have to go off of heartbeats in a day or bowel movements more likely to know when an entire day was up or just when you feel like you're ready to go to sleep. And that was a kind of an interesting thought. Because in the 21st century you are born into a room that has a clock on the wall. Whereas for a majority of human history there was no concept for time. And we still don't really know what time is. But we act like we do because we need to go punch a clock at a certain time. Whereas who knows when you die there's theories that everything crunches back to the beginning. Instead of the big bang, at the end there's a big crunch, and so time could just start going backwards. Imagine you have to live your entire life backwards. No! No! Oh well, Benjamin Button did it, can't be that bad. <laughs> Neelius goes on to talk about how in caves, like I was talking about before, we found notched bones or obviously cave drawings where people were tracking lunar cycles, and that's up to 4,000 BC. And Egyptians were the first to understand that a year is 365 days. People didn't even know what a year was then. How old are you, bruh? Um, I think I've taken like a couple hundred poops in my life. Yeah, that's pretty old. And then in 400 BC, there were battles with Polybius, and Neil has a couple excerpts that tell about how the generals were smarter because they can read the stars and then they would know when to attack whether what time of the year it was if you needed to go take somebody else's fruit because your village was running out you could go hit them at the harvest and then you could take all their cows when they're ovulating or if that's however it works you know but mr polobius in 400 bc and Columbus recycled this trick later, the dirty bastard that he was, he used a morning lunar eclipse to attack the enemy while it was still dark. So people didn't have watches on their arms. It was still dark out for an extra couple hours. People were sleeping in, and they woke up with spears in their chest because Polobius knew how to read the stars and knew there was going to be an eclipse the next day. So it was still dark out, and they just snuck up, <laughs> stabbed everybody. And then his story that they wrote uh, that they wrote all over in that papyrus BS coincided with the star records of ancient Greek times, which is pretty damn cool. Columbus, when he came over to America, he didn't use the old eclipse trick to attack anybody, even though he and his men are known for smashing babies on rocks by the feet. But he actually used the eclipse trick to convince the Hispaniolas into thinking he was a god. Just by being like, yo, tomorrow, if you piss me off, I am going to make the sun go away. And then there was a, a lunar eclipse and it went over the sun. And they're like, oh my god, who is this white devil? Pretty damn smart. And so that's why the generals and all of them had that higher ranking. Because they were able to read the stars and had an advantage then on their enemies. In 1610, much later, 
we're only talking about a few hundred years ago. Galileo then discovered a name we should all recognize if that's what we all have in common here. We all went to friggin' public American school, which has the same curriculum. So that's why I like nonfiction books. This is all built off. It's all relatable somehow, no matter how little attention you paid. <laughs> uh, so our man Galileo discovered moons around Jupiter and Saturn in 1610. And Washington didn't even know that dinosaurs existed. They didn't find dinosaur bones until like 1850. And then Galileo turned a, a couple pieces of glass up and was like, you see uh, Jupiter up there? There's uh, there's other worlds flying around there. And then what is George Washington to do? Just think people with wooden teeth are out there looking at us with foggy glass? I don't know. You can tell I was orbiting Earth when I thought of this part of the show. And now Galileo, there's also records of him being a little bit of a crook because the crown came to him and asked him to introduce star signs and he rigged the regal planet to be the dominant one. So he made like Taurus or whatever, the most powerful of the star signs are. DM me if you know that and you want to get mad at me. And he made the powerful one, the regal one, so... That was like religion to people, so now people were equating government with power. It's all about the framing. It's all about the framing. Like how George Washington never told a lie and had wooden teeth and looked at people on other planets. <laughs> and then a little bit further then in this chapter, he goes on to talk about how Sir Francis Bacon, who was one of our like sailors around the world, disproved Galileo's astrophysicist theory. So for all those thoughts out there that are quoting that I'm a Gemini and I need to get got or whatever, I'm going to send you to Sir Francis Bacon's pamphlets from 1800s about how this is all bullshit. Or you could just read Accessory to War, too, because this is 400 pages. It might be a little bit longer than your daily one-paragraph horoscope. Sorry. And then the last couple stories here in the chapter were about how Rudolf Hess, who was the third in command in the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, he bailed to London just on a stolen German plane and then crashed. And at the time, this was Hitler's astrologer, Rudolf Hess, third in command of Nazi Germany. So when he fled the now losing German World War II, they outlawed astrology, clairvoyance, and telepathy. So these... Um, in America, we have the marketplace of ideas like communism. If it's a stupid fucking idea, it gets shot down because the better ideas, you know, better speech, not more speech. If there's a better idea, it's going to take that one down. So even in the 40s, though, Nazi Germany, they were talking about star signs, clairvoyance, which is like talking to people on the other side and telepathy which who the hell knows maybe i mean i don't know the dark arts and maybe throughout this journey of nick's nonfiction, we're gonna learn a little bit more about that stuff i'll i'll draw a pentagram on my bedroom floor and pour some pig's blood on the ground if it means we're gonna get some good content i'm here for the listeners baby <laughs> so people like this mr rudolph hess were really big heads of state were taken by the u.s cia before and during the nuremberg trials because we needed these scientists to compete with the russians in what is called operation paperclip 
all declassified. You can go Google it. It's about how Grandpa Bush, Herschel Walker, I'm pretty sure, who was the head of the CIA, um, they took in the refugee German intellectuals. So you know that's kind of like if your gov- <laughs> if your um, if your government got in a divorce because people like to think of their president as like a daddy for the country or whatever. We had a divorce with the Nazis and we just took some of their stuff with us. That's a pretty garbage analogy. <laughs> so let's just finish that chapter with a quote. It is Neil talking about Nazi Germany and how we took their propagandists. So we took their people who were ahead. You know what these are, but I have to kind of say it because this shit is pretty unbelievable. We took the Nazis that were ahead of their brainwash committees who were making the little cartoons about we want you and all that type of stuff. Here's one of the quotes. Reassurance was given by initial victories. As time went on, however, the propagandists found it was convenient to deal with the increased tension of the German people by an increased use of predictions. So there's a greater need to predict in times of distress rather than in times of comfort. For a long time, predictions took place took the place of good news but when russia's force remained unbroken the policy was suddenly changed and predictions became rare and this is literally a tenant from 1984 george orwell's book war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength just like the stock market if the general consensus is confidence the numbers are going to be up and when it comes to a war you got to try to give predictions about how you're doing so well like how we showed the numbers of the dead Vietnamese scrolling past. After Walter Cronkite, your one source of news would go, and that's the way it is. When many times it wasn't, and he is proven to have lied to you for saying that shit now. But anyway, that was really interesting to see Neil deGrasse Tyson referencing Operation Paperclip and how he took some of those old Nazi propagandists. That's going to do it for chapter two. Look at that. We're, we're already like 25% of the way done. Hope you guys are enjoying yourself because I am having fun going over what was a really fun read. And feel free to not ever buy this book, ever touch another book that's nonfiction. Again, some people like books as an escape. I would rather just watch a movie so I can actually watch an explosion and I don't actually have to think of one. You know, the lazy man's entertainment. (laughs) I like them both. Why not everything? Chapter 3, Neil talking about sea power, and as I alluded to before, telescopes and how they were a massive advantage in warfare. We took to the seas when we understood star positioning. Stars let us read the ocean like it was a map, and we were able to develop then longitudes and latitudes for the first time. So there was a place that you can actually position yourself on earth it's not oh i'm 2000 paces past the big mountain i could give you a longitude and a latitude and we can meet out in the middle of the ocean for a duel and then once you do have longitude and latitude set up then you can set up a world clock because you have timelines that you can assign to each time zone and so then humans this is why in the past couple hundred years we've become efficient af but All that lazy DNA is still in us, and I feel that. I really feel that. Neil starts talking about this chapter, remembering how 
most developments start in the military with research just because usually that's where the money for funding is and being a really smart scientist like he said you got to take those contracts when you can we have some cool stories about people who were asked to build lasers and stuff in competitions all in due time though so tech usually develops in the military since britain and the royal navy were usually the biggest they were the first to accurately read the stars and then teach the stars to some of Spain as well. That's why they were able to imperialize most of the developed world. The two biggest languages are the world are English and Spanish, and that's because at this point in time, they were on their shit militarily-wise. Just like that book Outliers, you if you were on your game at all times, then you won't miss the opportunity. In the words of Eminem, you only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Yo! Anybody heard that one? How does that deal with longitude and latitude? Oh, yeah, Britain. Because they always had that telescopes ready. When ships started to get invented and people were able to map the world, they're like, all right, now let's take over the world. We're ready. You got to be ready at all times. Uh, so Polaris, quick little fact here that we know now but they had no idea polaris which was the north star it's the name for the north star has always been a really easy reference points for sailors and freed slaves as if you're <laughs> if you go through the american education system that's probably what you think of when you hear the north star it's weird right we all have that connection polaris has and will be the north star for only the next hundred years something about magnets or the way the poles switch uh, and the way we get moved off our axis a little bit but polaris isn't even going to be the north star anymore there is a story in this chapter about how a portuguese and a spanish tri ship tried to meet up using the north star as a reference point and they wound up like 40 longitudinal degrees off of each other which is like a third of the atlantic ocean so you really got to be on with that and these stars are moving every few hundred years so they're making do with what they could just riding the winds around in these canoes and now we have like satellites and stuff whoa man pretty cool right <laughs> neil goes on to talk about hipparchus that's the type of name where if you see it in a book you just want to zone out and be like ugh history hipparchus used pythagoras theorem to calculate longitude and latitude so this is kind of like it's kind of interesting at least this is how i make it interesting when i'm reading this thing so like in 16 how old are you what is that junior year of high school they teach you physics that was the coolest class i thought at the time because they're literally unlocking how the world works when something falls off the table there's a reason it'll fall at that speed bounce off of this thing and bounce over there when i played my pool at my buddy's house between sophomore and senior year i was a whole different player because a i'm stupid and i guess i needed to be in the class to think about that type of stuff on a regular basis but it was like unlocking the code to the world that's something i wish i took in college coding I'm going to be like the old kid. What? What are they doing? They're making video games. I had one of my roommates. He took a coding class. He had to make a little like Pac-Man game. He used it to make a plane go across the top of the screen and drop dildos on Adolf Hitler. 
He built that damn game. Can you think about that? I can't even code. I can't write one line of code. <laughs> and then so we got to learn physics. They like unlock half of how the universe works for you. And so Hipparchus was like, yo, remember that Pythagorean theorem? One side of a triangle is like equal to half the other one. What if we do that to the stars in the horizon? So then they were able to just measure the stars in the horizon with, you guessed it, the sextant, the only scientific instrument that will ever get you laid if you bring it up to someone. Hey, do you want to see my new beakers and petri dish? Nah, girl, you want to come see my new sextant? Hell yeah, son. That's what I'm talking about. These scientists don't know what they're doing. <laughs> anyway, this guy was... Uh, just going around measuring stuff but thank god he measured the stars to the the horizon because then you can kind of tell where you are on earth but then we had technology not quite the sexton by 1200 chinese and italians had invented their own version of the compass because all you need is just a little piece of uh metal and magnet and then you'll kind of learn about magnetic fields just through trial and error turning into a circle you might get a little bit dizzy but in 1200, Chinese and Italians had their compass. And then in 1394, Portugal was searching for the River of Gold in Africa. And which is kind of like in Columbus, they were looking for the Fountain of Youth in America. So these stories kind of just repeat themselves every few hundred years. So we got a little mid-show, Would You Rather. The one at the end is obviously the real and the better. But Would You Rather be born in 1394 and be looking for the fountain of gold in africa or be born in the 1500s and be looking for the fountain of youth in america my idea i'm thinking here is the fountain of youth because you can still dry from like trauma in like 2500 if i'm like wow i don't want to be alive for another thousand years i could just eat a bunch of mcdonald's you know, or I could work at McDonald's for 200 years and be the richest man ever as long as I invest right. <laughs> but yeah, time is definitely a resource. And if there's just a river of gold, it's going to devalue all the gold. Case closed. So like how the city steals animals and makes you pay to see them. Like I could steal all of the, uh, <laughs> all of the fountain of youth water. And then I could use that to sell it to people. But I can't just keep bottling all that gold up. I'll just piss downstream from the fountain of youth and people won't want to have the taste of piss in their mouth their whole life. <laughs> I don't know. We'll keep the would-you-rathers for the end would-you-rather. This is the first show. We're feeling it out. I hope you guys are having fun because I am. A little further on in this sea power chapter, Columbus and his maps thought that the Atlantic would be like a third the size of the world, so basically the size of the Pacific. People really didn't know that much, even though that we had a way to now grid off the world. So you, you kind of had a better sense of where you were. And then in the 1500s, the Treaty of Tortellini, that's a real thing, was signed when the Portuguese and the Spanish split up the New World. So like Brazil and South America along latitudes and the maps 
with their two maps, they marked off what part of the latitudes they wanted. And since not everything was that accurate, the story goes that the Portuguese ships were more accurate at the time. They had more advanced sailing techniques. And when you sail along the coast, that's how they were mapping it. And the Portuguese guessed the right latitude. And that's why they have the property or domain over Brazil. Everybody in Brazil speaks Portuguese. And I think they definitely made the better <laughs> choice over, like, Mexico with all those natural resources in the Amazon. That's why you want to fund your military, because you could find out stuff and pull a quick Louisiana purchase over on your enemy. <laughs> and the Spanish and the Portuguese were going at it for hundreds of years on the ocean. There was another story about how a Spanish and a Portuguese ship came across each other, and then the Spanish people were like... Why are you guys drunk today? It's Sunday. It's the day of the Lord. You're not good Hispanic. <laughs> You're not good Hispanics. The Lord would look bad upon you. And then the Portuguese are like, bruh, it's Tuesday. You don't even know what day it is. You've been on the ocean for that long. You haven't been keeping track of the days. So they didn't even know what day it is. And if you're on the ocean for that long, it's like highway hypnosis. You can lose track of months if you're just floating out there. And they were getting drunk. <laughs> they're getting drunk so that doesn't help anyway and the end of sea power in 1500 there were makeshift clocks not until the 1800s were they accurate so in 1500 those old clocks on a chain a good one would accumulate a 15 minute error every single day so you could see why these guys would not even could be off by a couple of days in the middle of the ocean with just salted meat no fruit and rum but that's a pretty fun life for a while, I could guess. And that brings us to the end of our third chapter. Alrighty, so those first three chapters, like I said, felt a little bit like a history lesson. And this is when a nonfiction book, and this book especially, really could start finding its legs. And this chapter talks about how wars are won with intel. And that's when your military starts to thrive, when you got better technology and you know your enemy's next move we start off again talking about galileo a little bit and how he made the second telescope ever with nine times magnification and then within a year he had one that was already like six times bigger than that but think about the first year that telescope was made when you can be nine miles away from something and put that little piece of glass up to your eye and somebody could be waving at you like they're just a mile away that is a huge advantage when you're on the ocean it literally extends your horizon which sounds like a crappy instagram model's caption expand your horizon while her butthole is in the front of the camera but this is what galileo was able to do by creating the glass butthole for the eye known as the telescope Think about how trippy that would have been to be a king in your castle and you could go up to the top and take your telescope out and just zoom in on any of your little plebes working out on the farms in the village. Kind of like how any government could do with their satellites now. Or just tune into our laptop and wave at little FBI man in the camera. Hello. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking into a damn microphone, so I've already bugged my entire place. With Galileo's new telescope, earlier naval vessels say that they were able to see enemy ships from two hours before the enemies could see them. So imagine sailing at an enemy ship for two hours, able to prep your cannons and all that. 
while the enemy has no idea that you're there because their horizon is only two miles away or whatever the human eye can see. This is like the same trope. It's like detection is the biggest and the fighter jets that they build now, like the F-35s, are supposed to be equipped with the best radar that can detect a Chinese fighter jet from 20 minutes before they even know we're in the air. So if you could blow up your enemy before they even know you exist, that's obviously a big advantage. And with these boats, if you could see the other enemy two hours before, you can avert your course and always keep your lead on them, hoping they don't have a telescope as well. Or you could just get ready and go boys them. After a little Galileo chat, Neil goes on to talk about how Washington, in his uh, famous photo crossing George Washington, the Delaware, crossing the Delaware during the Revolutionary War, in one hand in the picture he's holding a telescope, and in the other hand he's holding a saber, like a sword. If you watch the movie, what is that movie with Mel Gibson, The Patriot or whatever, it's about the Revolutionary War, and they actually, like, sit on the boats going to go attack the Hessians in Trenton, New Jersey, in coats, but in this famous picture, I'm sure you'll recognize it if you Google it, George Washington's, like, standing on the front of the boat with an arm in the air, and all the people are in t-shirts or different types of clothes, not in military uniform, and heroically trying to cross this freezing river. I think there's even, like, a dog in the boat, but... These things are just symbolisms. That's the point of these old paintings, because they couldn't take a damn picture. And the fact that he's holding a a sword and a telescope is a nod at how these were the two biggest military advancements to date. The sword, obviously, because it was like forged steel and the samurais and everything, it changed warfare back in that further place. I don't go into that far of history usually because it has zero effect some of this like Washington type of stuff bleeds into our society. So I'm not as well versed on the sword, the long sword and the bow sword in 2000 BC. I don't know that much about that. I'm sure you could find some weeb on YouTube to tell you all about that. Um, I'm only half a degree away from that guy talking about accessory to war. So you're getting your knowledge here too. Anyway, this chapter is about arming the eye. And in 1780, Washington said, I'll take a spy over a glass because they work at night, can hear things, and can kill people, which was a good point. So even though they had spy glasses at this time, they didn't have sniper rifles. So even though I could see you nine miles away, I couldn't shoot you, I couldn't do anything about it. It definitely helps for planning, but George Washington's like, I still want my best man dressed in black following you in the middle of the night. That way he can hear what you say and then he can kill you if he wants as well. Pretty smart guy. He founded the biggest country ever. Just a couple other sections in this chapter about arming the eye. In the early 1800s, there was a guy from Pennsylvania called Thomas Melville. He invented the hair sheet, which could more closely dissect the color wave spectrum which gets into a lot more stuff, but this is just the base. Trust me, it's not for nothing. So the color wave spectrum, if you've seen like the Pink Floyd album, you know, you shoot one beam of light, and then it shows the entire visible light spectrum. So Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, indigo. I'm dyslexic too, I guess. 
all those colors is everything you see. Human beings cannot see ultraviolet. We cannot see radio waves. We cannot see ultrasound or any of those gamma rays. Cats and some small predators can, which is really cool, and he talks about later in the book. But this guy, Thomas Melville, was the first to prove that not only is there Roy G. Biv, but between all those colors are darker shades of the Roy G. Biv. So it's not just these seven colors that make up the entire world, but everything is on a spectrum. And he's the one that blew it up to, instead of like the 20 colors that we had in Kids Picks or Microsoft Paint, whatever you used to use, he proved that there's 10,000 different shades of color. And I'm sure people hated that in 1800. You're either a boy or you're a girl. You're a farmer or you're a soldier. You're either red, blue, or nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that has much potential. But this dude discovered every single shade of light with some horse hair in Pennsylvania. Cheers. Our telescopes now, by using this technology, can see obviously 70,000 times more light as uh, Galileo's first telescope. But the observable universe now with this technology, which means as far as we can see, because this damn thing goes on forever, but as far as we can see, the universe is 900,000 billion billion kilometers. I don't even know how to write that number in numbers. I had to write that out in letters. (laughs) And that shows how much of an aptitude I have for math. 900,000 billion billion kilometers. That's how Neil deGrasse Tyson described it as well, and he speaks that whole astrophysicist math language. And that's why he's a science communicator. 900 billion billion. Get out of here with that. So without this awesome technology we have now, and like Thomas Melville, who was able to predict that there's all these different shades of light with only hair, Newton knew that the twinkling of the stars would not let you be able to see the detail of it and he knew that was so because it was the atmosphere interfering with the view of the star so i don't know if twinkle twinkle little star was written before or after newton damn i don't have a punchline that was a pretty good setup i don't know if twinkle twinkle little star was written before or after newton but but he could have fucking fixed the song And then Newton wrote in some of his papers, though, like, hey, in the future, if we're going to try to build big telescopes, put them on the tops of mountains. And now our biggest observers observatory in the world is in Chile on top of the Andes Mountains. And it has, like, the thinnest atmosphere and uh, light pollution. But now we can put telescopes in space. So that doesn't really matter. But Newton was able to predict all that. It was in 1990 that we launched the Hubble. It was the first time that we could use different exposures as well, like the radio waves, gamma waves, uh, ultraviolet, so we could see what the sun, the solar coronal ejections, how close they actually get to Earth and stuff like that. Some of these stories about arming the eye, about how these people were able to find these things out through the scientific method before they even existed, which goes to show that you could trust the scientific method if it's adhered to correctly. That's pretty cool in a world where you can't believe in a lot. Next up, 
the Reagan administration uh, was complaining about how the intel in the 80s, you had to wait like hours for an image to load from satellites to other bases. So they had dial up like 14 years ahead of the public. So the, you always hear this the, like DARPA or military technology is 20 years ahead of the average consumer. I would gather to say it's maybe like 20 decades ahead or something, but even in that quote he had from the Reagan administration that they were bitching about, listen, in the future we need to have this dial up a lot faster because imagine this was a war situation and we're waiting hours to download these images and messages. Let's get these computers to be better. I have a cool little tidbit about Trinity, one of the military supercomputers, so we'll be talking about that later. A little bit before Reagan, Lyndon B. Johnson, which was actually a couple of years before Eisenhower's famous Beware the Military Industrial Complex speech, very famous. Johnson acknowledged that space control is the ultimate position for freedom. Got a quote here. Eisenhower and Lyndon B. Johnson, this is was the this is in the age of the rockets. And we're trying to get up into space. And Lyndon goes, there's something more important than any ultimate weapon. That is the ultimate position. The position of total control over the Earth that lies somewhere out in space. That is the distant future, though not so distant as we may have thought. Whoever gains the ultimate position gains control, total control over the Earth for purposes of tyranny or the services of freedom. So it can go either way. We have a quote later about how science has no mind of its own. It can be used for good or for evil. That's something Neil deGrasse Tyson says a lot. And this is what Johnson is saying about space as well. We can use it as Bunker Hill, the ultimate high ground to shoot down on the enemies. Or we can use it for the ISS, for space research or whatever we're doing up there on that <laughs> in that little capsule. But the military has known that since 1940, that... Whoever is going to put the biggest gun in space is going to win, at least for now. And this kind of ties me into um, now talking about that Eisenhower, but where the uh, in the, uh, military industrial complex quote, it's getting me wanting to bring up Snowden again and how we should know what our government is doing, where our tax dollars are going. That's the part I don't get, how there's no accountability for our money. It's like we all have a giant friggin' hole in our pocket, and we're doing high knees in the middle of the subway. And in that breath, we are in the space race right now. If you look at some papers written by, like, Glenn Greenwald for The Guardian, who broke the Snowden case, one of the only real journalists that are alive today, <laughs> he had talked about how we are in a space race currently. And, I mean, we're in a damn cold war right now. None of that stuff ever really ended. All those videos of the weird-looking colors in the atmosphere, like on Instagram, there was one over, I think it was San Francisco, a giant blue light. And nobody asks a question. We just make memes about it and get over it the next week. And that's just a bad sign. Like, I started this show, for whatever reason, talking about the... Oh, yeah, Milt. In that first chapter the Vietnamese protests that Neil described compared to now nobody even wants to know what looks like an alien invasion is I don't know I certainly do not know people we're here to figure it out 
wrapping up this satellite, Neil, for the first time, mentions the 24 USA GPS satellites that we use. It's referred to as a keyhole in the CIA. So if I say that on accident, it's referring to the 24 global positioning satellites that we use. The ones that like my iPhone's tapped into, not someone in the military using like a little comm device. We have different satellites. And these are like 12,000 miles away in the Earth's atmosphere, just floating out there, geostationed, following the U.S. around. And we're just using these things to bone. <laughs> you think we'd use it to like look up Wikipedia or something like that, but uh, no, I'm using Tinder. To bring arming the eye to an end, we have some of this better technology in the sky and just a little more knowledge about the universe than looking at each other with telescopes. And in 1859, we detected the biggest solar flare, also called a plasma pie, and it was the biggest in 500 years, named after the British guy that discovered it, Carrington. And would you really want a... <laughs> the thing that's going to fry the earth and all of the satellites sending us back to the stone age to be named after you like the uh the alzheimer doctor do you want your family to have to be named after one of the worst diseases for the rest of their life oh that's billy billy's a great guy billy alzheimer billy billy what he has all no that's just his last name billy alzheimer johnny carrington he's gonna wipe out the entire friggin' earth that, that joke will land a lot harder in 200 years, trust me. I'll be getting credit for that one. <laughs> and we're going to end this chapter with another quote, because Neil deGrasse Tyson is out here quoting Mad Men, TV show that I did not watch, but I understand the gist of, and it seems pretty entertaining. I'll have to divulge one, one set of weeks. It's such a damn commitment. There's too much TV out there, people. Yeah, I'll have to commit to that one. Even in a fictional TV show, he's going, every scientist, engineer, and general is trying to figure out a way to put a man on the moon or to blow up Moscow, whichever one costs more. We have to explain to them how we can help them spend that money. Congressmen are the customers. They want aerospace in their districts. Let them know that we can help them bring those contracts home. So that's how businessmen the people who are bribing our lawmakers think about it and there's a lot of money in the war game people that's why we're so good at it america we're number one at everything especially arms dealing that's gonna bring us to the end of the first half of the book people the first half of our first episode people thank you guys for hanging around this is nick's nonfiction, and we are learning if you're skipping around, we're going to do our monthly Would You Rather at the end, as well as just a little bit of a show wrap-up, and a thank you to the listener. Chapter 5. Let's do a little Neil deGrasse voice. That coffee's wearing off. I'm going to have to go have another cup. Chapter 5. Unseen, undetected, unspoken. Chapter 5 is about invisibility and intelligence, so a little bit more than just seeing your enemy was the last chapter. This one's about invisibility. It's getting badass, right? These nonfiction books, they pick up in the later half. So it's about invisibility and intel, where camouflage comes from in a military aspect, and our, because, you know, bugs are camouflaged, and then our crazy capabilities now. The biggest problem 
is how you have to understand how light works and passes through or reflects off of things. Because think about it, if you want to be invisible, you have to make the light get off of you or go through you. So we're just going to do a little bit of how light works so we can have a better conversation about how our military technology works. Little throwback to start us off, get our minds jogged. Up until the telescope was invented by Mr. Galileo, right after that the microscope was invented as well because they kind of just, you know, reversed to the zoom of the lenses. But it took still another couple hundred years because people were like, let's look at the big stuff, not what's, are there, is there anything smaller than us? Because we don't care about things that are smaller than us usually. Anyway, nowadays though, we're able to detect even cloaked enemies because we have uh, infrared sensors, you could like strap that on an M16, and then you're the you're basically a predator, like the movie Predator. You're not following kids around with an M16, I hope. So one of the new biggest forms of invisibility is invisibility of in, of information, like encryption, and that's going to be really big throughout this chapter. So optic sciences blew up in the past hundred years, like scopes and dark shades of the prisms become really important when we're trying to see an enemy in what time of day. I came across this video on Instagram the other day, and it was military-grade night vision. That was, like, the caption, but who knows if I could probably buy this crap. It was almost unbelievable. They put it on in the desert. It looked like it was daytime, dude. I, I don't know how to describe it any better. It looked like they were looking around in daytime, but there were stars out. You could see it as bright as day that ex i know the meaning of that expression now that just clicked man it was as bright as day he had these goggles that were amazing you could see the little like jackrabbits walking around because humans can't see them it was pretty insane just go google military grade night vision and so optic science became really big thanks to our dude william herschel in the 1800s remember with his hairs he made it possible for us to use this filter, though, and point it outwards at the cosmos. And so now we can detect the hottest rays are just above red, which is like infrared, which is what the sun shoots out. So the next Carrington, we won't even be able to see what's singeing us. It's not even in the visible ray of light. It's just going to kill us before you can even see it. You know, an invisible death ray. <laughs> And then Herschel also actually predicted ultraviolet, which is the frequency on the other side of the red, so it's the purple, and which it couldn't be seen for like 130 years, but again, he discovered the whole electromagnetic scale with nothing. Humans can only see within the wavelength of 400 to 700 nanometers, so it's really, really narrow. There's this thing called the mantis shrimp. It's on, what is it, Blue Planet 2? awesome documentary on netflix if you haven't watched that yet you are doing yourself a disservice but this shrimp can see in nine different shades not even shades man it's like filters they can do ultraviolet they can do infrared and visible light all of that and they see different colors imagine trying to describe a new color to someone you can't i can't even describe color to a blind person and these shrimp are seeing different colors than us they can like tune into that spectrum more. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, snakes have infrared sensors and so do insects. The whole insect world, you could get lost in a big rabbit hole. Insects are aliens. 
and some of them have infrared detectors think about that that movie predator they just had to go and look at some bugs for a couple of days and they're like i got it we got a whole movie here we just need some explosions and sylvester stallone <laughs> guess what else man's second best friend cats can also see infrared so if you're like cooking or something and they smell something good in the air the fumes probably have a different hue to them or if you show your laptop to a cat like you try to make them look at the screen they just trip out that's kind of like if you look at the sun through an ultraviolet lens it's just all these flowing colors and yeah it's probably what a cat sees when they're looking at your laptop is what I'm trying to get at because you don't know what to make of it. And our little ape eyeballs, we're trying to look at the entire cosmos with them, but we really got to be using these giant telescopes. And that's where the money comes in. Money's not the fun talk, though. So here's a little hypothetical. Would you or what year would you be okay with scooping out your eyeballs and putting in advanced human eyeballs? Now, there's probably a bunch of people who are already, like, have LASIK or contacts. But why not just get new eyeballs so that you could see through walls or stuff like that? <laughs> I don't think I would do it in my lifetime, but who am I to talk? I'll probably put in a computer chip contact lens. Watch it meld to my brain and turn into some sort of Black Mirror episode. And then that'll be the end of us. All because I wanted to see an infrared. <laughs> So that's going to be most of the talk we're going to do about the light spectrum. And now that we know about what human eyeballs can see, you know how to fool the human eyeball. So Neil makes one of his uh, comparisons between Sun Tzu's The Art of War to his accessory to war, quoting him saying, All warfare is based on deception. Got that right, baby. Even in 600 BC, you knew that, buddy. (laughs) In one of the royal navies they had what was called venetian blue and that was how they cloaked their scout ships against the u-boats because with the u-boats it was super easy no no fish swims like a boat does even a whale might do that for 20 minutes to get some air but they don't have a rotor that's spinning as fast as a boat is so what the royal navy comes up with is if you can't conceal you gotta confuse and so they they used, before the term camouflage was invented, they called it razzle-dazzle. They would razzle-dazzle ships before they knew what camouflage was. Oh, we're coming at you with that razzle-dazzle on our warships, sonny. They would paint ships weird designs just to blur the edges. If you talk to a hunter, if you're looking for like pheasants or a bird, you always try to look for the outline of the animal against the edges of the forest because that's what sticks out the most. And just like the boat floating along the surface, you got to try to blur the edges so it all blends in. And now, but now we have like deafening sonar beeps. Another Instagram video I saw where these scuba divers. Uh, I just got shivers. Uh, there were scuba divers and a submarine drove by them. <laughs> How like uncomfortable that makes me feel. I don't know why it sends like slime down my spine. And the submarine was giving off sonar beeps and it was deafening. The people were like trying to swim up to the surface real quick and stuff because the beeps were so damn loud. It's just a giant metal whale 
making a sound that no biological creature ever could come close to. And those things actually do like deafen whales and belugas and all that with really sensitive hearing. But it was pretty scary to see on video that that's what's in the ocean. It's a whole nother world down there. You know how we won World War II, they say? American steel, British intel, Russian lives. So British intel, the old razzle-dazzle. Americans used uh, razzle-dazzle to confuse instead of conceal with chaff. And three quarters of U.S. aluminum foil went to chaff production, which is just little bits of aluminum foil that they would drop out of the bay of like a bomber to confuse anti-air weapons. So it would just be like it was like raining aluminum foil. And that way, anything that was either heat seeking or whatever they were looking at, they were just confusing whatever weaponry so that we would able to be drop bombs. I thought that was pretty interesting. That's why everybody had lunchboxes, I guess, and collector lunchboxes were such a big thing in the 40s, because nobody could wrap their sandwich in aluminum foil. Hey. <laughs> While we were learning a little bit more about camouflage and U-boats in these early 1900 years, even in 1934, people were able to make trans-Pacific telephone calls. I thought that amazed me. I didn't know that. And that was kind of like I was amazed when I heard that there is a cable that goes underneath the Atlantic Ocean that connects us to them for the internet. It's not like wireless. There's literally an ethernet cable under the Atlantic Ocean. And you could watch videos of like sharks going and biting on it, but it's reinforced very well. But if I just wanted to take over the world or like hold the world hostage, why don't I just go with a giant pair of scissors down to the bottom of the ocean and demand a couple hundred bucks? I don't know. Maybe that's my uh, terrorist idea movie. Nobody take that. Or take it, because it's going to bomb anyway. So I'll be able to laugh at you. <laughs> and now a little bit deeper into being unseen and undetected. Radio astronomy and positioning ourselves in the center of the galaxy was like a big concern here. We're still so primitive. We don't even have like an objective center of the universe. We still use that as ourselves as humans. But... For the first time, using radio astronomy, we were able to detect that the Earth's axis, so our like uh, daily rotation, isn't 24 hours. It's actually 23 hours and 56 minutes. So 6,000 years after the uh, Egyptians figured out that a day is 365 years, we're going to be laughed at because up until like 80 years ago, we didn't even know that a day is four minutes shorter than we actually thought it was. But that's why uh, daylight savings comes into use. And we were able to figure out this type of stuff with big old radio telescopes. Our one in Puerto Rico, the U.S.'s, was the biggest for a minute. And they used to detect Russian ICBMs in the Cold War. It was used to point at Russia, whereas we could have been like, shooting messages out into the universe which is probably a better idea to be watching out for your enemies bombing you rather than screaming into the vast emptiness hoping for some alien to come by <laughs> but there's a problem with this the problem is that the new biggest radio telescope is china's fast that's just the acronym for it and the chinaman that's running the system says that if you filled Google the big, the radio telescope in Puerto Rico. It looks like you, you could have the Super Bowl inside of it. It's a giant, it's like a giant satellite dish you'd see on some redneck dude's house. 
but you could have the X Games in it. I don't know, man. It's so big. You just got to see a picture of this damn thing. Please look it up. Um, <laughs> the China guy that runs fast, the satellite that was built, telescope that was built in 2016 says, if you filled the entire dish with wine, all of Earth's 7 billion people could take home five bottles of wine. And that is actually a reason for celebration. If we could all go to this giant telescope, which is the first thing that's going to be able to come in contact with aliens, we should have a damn human party at the base of this thing and drink five bottles of wine apiece just because this guy said so. And that would be literally the best party in the history of humanity. And I guess if I have to be the club promoter for that party, I will. Willingly. (laughs) That's a real thing, though. It's 200 meters longer than the satellite in Puerto Rico. So two more football fields bigger, this thing imagine. And so literally, if there are communication symbols, radio waves coming in from the outside in whatever alien language, it's going to be picked up by the Chinese telescope first. So we no longer have the first control. Did you see that movie Arrival? China is about to nuke the aliens and we're like, no, let's be nice to them. So that's real life. That movie was made off of real life ideas. And then a few more things about being unseen here. The story of the microwave. The British stole the Nazi radar in World War II, so we reverse engineered it over at Cambridge Radio Laboratory. Percy Spencer was the name of the guy over at Raytheon that accidentally melted a candy bar in his pocket, reverse engineering the microwave. So it was just like shooting at his balls all day and it melted the candy bar in his pocket. But at least we know now that we could cook things really fast, even if it costed his entire family bloodline. So our earlier version was this thing called the magnetron that we had on the nose of our planes. And we had them on like a scout party out on the day of Pearl Harbor that detected the Japanese fleet coming about an hour ahead, which General was chalked up as a fleet of friendly bombers, which uh, obviously didn't turn out to be quite so, as a lot of people that were at Pearl Harbor would be able to tell you up in heaven one day. And then that's how the microwave was created. (laughs) Another cool story that we were just reverse engineering Nazi technology up in the Northeast in Monmouth, New Jersey in 1943. The first guy was able to communicate via the moon and he bounced radio waves off of the moon to another guy chilling in an army base over in Iowa. And he got, he was able to get the messages. I think it was like 16 minute delay. But it's like shouting into a cannon. Obviously, that message wasn't encrypted. Anybody who else who had a dish microphone would be able to tune into the frequency. But it was the first message that somebody just bounced off the moon at somebody. Pretty bad ass, man. How do you send a text off the moon to someone? <laughs> Neil says, as a scientist, if the war department offers to foot the bill for your experiment, you got to do that ish. So a little more advanced now about the light. Stealth is all about albedo, which is the amount of light that a substance absorbs. So like the moon is a is a 0.12 albedo. So it only absorbs 12% of the light it reflects. So it's pretty damn dark. And Venus is a 0.75, 75% albedo, which is why if you look up in the night sky, everybody mistakes Venus for a star. It's, it's like a little bit of a redder hue. 
it, but it looks exactly like a star because it reflects so much light. That's the same thing with Mars. People just pointed in like, hey, look at that star. Make a wish upon a star. Homie, that's Mars. <laughs> now that we know about albedo and reflecting light, we know what you can do to make something look pitch black. And Lockheed's skunk unit, you, know, you see when you use their actual terms, you sound like you don't know what you're talking about which is like one of the advanced research projects who are always working on the highest stealth technology. And the skunk unit over at Lockheed made the U-2, which you know the story. The U-2 caught the missiles being put into Cuba by Russia. So that was pretty good that we knew we could have been blown to smithereens if they didn't make these planes. But they also made the F-117 Nighthawk, that one that looks like a big floating triangle or origami crane. And it's painted over with Northrop's B2 albedo reducing paint. Also, like radar waves that are pointed at the fighter jet will be diffused. And for that matter, they try to say that it's totally undetectable. So as long as you can understand light, then you can avoid it. Once you understand something, then you can start to perfect it and work your ways around it. But guess how much we paid Northrop to develop that paint? A hundred and four million dollars. Imagine that. Those are million dollar buckets of paint. I want some of that. <laughs> what would you do? Paint your room and then just live in some like little hacker's cube? I don't think that's how it works. And now Neil says in comparison to what we have now, the B2, in his words, if Batman flew a stealth bomber, the B2 would be his weekend ride Batplane. So, by comparison, the Batplane is like a freaking weekend driver. The thing breaks down and is nothing compared to the stealth tech that we have today. UFOs, man. <laughs> and now we're in the last part of our fifth chapter. This got into some really cool stuff. Neil was talking about mount technology, which is because he's an astrophysicist and scientists being used by the military. And one of the one of the coalitions that he referred to is MAUT, which is the military operations urban terrain. So basically like your SWAT team unit or your like police units that have technology that could diffuse a protest. And some of this stuff is creepy, people. So here's a warning. Neil says, um, and almost all SWAT units now possess Raytheon's active denial silent guardian system, which shoots microwaves into protesters and it feels like your skin is frying underneath your clothes. Um, these were used at like the Occupy Wall Street and it immediately makes people disperse because it feels like you're being cooked like a fish stick under a frying light because they're literally turning microwaves on you. I don't know how this is legal or isn't looked at as bad as Tiananmen Square. And then he also mentioned Raytheon's Voice of God, which is like the scariest weapon of all time, which if activated at certain frequencies can send subliminal messages that only um, whoever is directed at can hear. So at the Occupy Wall Street as well, six years ago, a lot of protesters had corroborating stories after about hearing the phrase in a it was in a lady's voice and they said on repeat for some people were able to stay there for hours and then they turned on the uh silent guardian the microwaves but for a couple hours they heard this voice saying the protest it has ended please disperse the protest it has ended please disperse. And they said it was on a loop for a couple hours or for however long those stories the people of each people had to say. 
and they were probably using that as the military ops urban terrain tech to get these kids to get to get out of wall street because that was not a good look for the big banks especially when we just spend all of our taxpayers money bailing them out but you know we'll get into that another time but yeah that's some creepy stuff all that like anti-protest weaponry they have is fucking gross man it is real scary stuff it makes you want to stay home and not be part of a protest but it's exactly the point (laughs) that's like the enemy team wearing black uniforms because they want to scare you yeah you have a microwave that can make me shit my pants in the middle of a crowd so i'm a little bit scared and and something that could put voices in my head that that definitely sets me a little uneasy now (laughs) and finally in this unseen undetected chapter neil neil talks about how our satellite system now kh11 is equipped with infrared and it helped us win you know the world's biggest game of hide and seek against bin laden how we found him in his compound in pakistan and we have come a long way from the telescope yeah remember talking about that a little bit ago we are talking about using infrared satellites to capture terrorists in the middle of pakistan think about that man if you told galileo that we would have a giant telescope floating above our head in near earth orbit that we would use to win a game of hide and seek pretty pretty cool (laughs) that's chapter five ladies and germs some promising stuff some scary stuff coming and we are in full swang as i told you this stuff gets juicy chapter six we have some detection stories this chapter is about like crazy developments and the usage of surveillance tech not that much we'll breeze through this one uh one of the first stories was about how some schmuck in england was the first to see a u.s satellite going to the moon in 1958 and that same year we launched our first satellite quote unquote um so like british intel was kind of blowing up our spot because some dude with (laughs) with a telescope saw that we were shooting unmanned vehicles at the moon to kind of see what it was all about a decade before our big show that we put on for everyone but that goes back to the british intel is always on point american steel and russian lives so further into the detection stories where would we be without the great einstein we have a quote from him one of his more well-known quotes I'm going to paraphrase it. After the destruction and loss of lives, whatever, in World War III, World War IV will will surely be fought with sticks and stones. And that was very prevalent in people's minds. Even JFK alluded to that speech when he signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1963. And then we'll talk about later how that was terminated, a test ban treaty by one of our presidents. But another thing I learned from this book is that treaties are some bull schnift. Like, the military's mantra is trust but verify. So, like, yeah, we have this treaty we trust. You're going to obey to it, but we have to verify that you are obeying to it. So is that really trust if you have to watch them anyway? I would argue no. Hey, baby, I trust you. I trust you, but I need to verify that you're not texting other dudes. Let me see your phone. I trust you. But I got to see that. I don't know. That sounds a little logically contradictory to me. (laughs) 
So anyway, that test ban treaty was signed in. But like I'm saying, treaties are going to be irrelevant in 10 to 20 years anyway. And now we have satellites with gamma ray detection. So we can point that at our hollow earth, you know, and then just see on the other side who's blowing up nuclear weapons. That's kind of hard to keep hidden. And obviously the world, the freaking world isn't hollow, but when our satellites do go over Earth, you know we'd be checking out Russia and China to see if they're blowing anything up. But there are a lot of cool articles you could read about underground explosive test laboratories that they have out in like Siberia and really deep in China. And at the end, we'll be talking about designer bombs, which is some really crazy stuff that the military can do now. Just And they're testing these things in deep underground facilities like i'm saying you're not allowed to test these things but if you dig a deep enough hole (laughs) nobody could call you on your treaty and then uh, again here one of my favorite quotes from the books neil says any political skeptic says there's a lot of leeway where you sign the treaty and how much you will abide so it's really interesting though how uh like when you're signing a treaty with another nation it's more about you just signing like hey, dude, we cool? We cool. All right, let's go from here and not try to mess each other over along these guidelines. But you don't have to abide to all this shit. The Paris Climate Accords, you know China would be dumping in the atmosphere as much as they are anyway. But they're also finding out new ways to clean up the atmosphere quicker than any of us. So things are changing quicker than any of us are knowing what to do, I guess is my point. Especially me. I haven't been here that long. (laughs) I've been here for 22 damn years stuff's changing quicker than i've been here and then again trust but verify would you be okay if the police's policy was that with your iphone they're like hey we found we smell marijuana in the area so we're walking around the park and we're going to have to check everybody's phone to make sure you aren't dealing any marijuana you know we trust that you aren't here because you said you aren't but we just have to verify i thought you're innocent until proven guilty but not internationally i guess And then this isn't as much of a detection story, but Neil touched upon time dilation, which is as far as he went to in this book is really cool. Maybe I'll do a nonfiction book on this in the future. It's kind of it's like uh, Interstellar, the movie where when you go on a certain planet, the gravity is different. So time goes at a different rate. And so actually, if you're on the International Space Station for six months, you age 0.005 seconds less than everyone on Earth. So, you know, if you're up on the ISS for like four years, you're three seconds younger. But that's kind of cool. So if you went further out in orbit, then you would save even more time. And that's some stuff that you need to have a big old noggin to comprehend. I have no idea how time dilation works. And I'm not going to pretend I do. Uh, Another story. In 1858, this guy used a cow 100 yards away to show that infrared radiation can bounce off of living things and then thomas edison stole this idea and said that we should map the dark parts of the sky with it and then like our friend mr mills out in pennsylvania we had the story of him inventing the light spectrum before he was even able to see himself this guy called giacani detected the x-ray telescope before we could even use it he was like i have this thing but there's this ionosphere above us and it's just part of one of the layers of our atmosphere (laughs) we would be able to see a lot clearer into space but the atmosphere is kind of blocking this from us but on the counter side if an ionosphere wasn't there we would also all have bone cancer from all the radiation coming in from space 
So that's definitely a plus. But this guy Giacani sold the uh, X-ray technology in 1974 to ASNE, which were the guys that implemented the X-ray scanners then at airports for all carry-ons. So there's a lot of money in this stuff. Follow the money. Part 5. Another story he had was detection from the KH-9. Okay, so this is when we get into keyhole hexagon our 20 satellites that we use in america so the the cia shot these up in the early 80s and they kind of look like mini hubble telescopes if you ever look at the hubble telescope it looks like it looks like a giant microscope but it's pointed out at space and so these keyhole 20 microscopes are just pointed at earth in different directions like little ooh, little creepy eyeballs that we're controlling all in our atmosphere and so you could Google these things. It's pretty cool. They look like a 50 caliber round, but like 50,000 calibers. And so if this thing fell out of Earth orbit, man, that would be a good explosion. But think about it like they're called telescopes. But whenever you take a plane or you're taking off and leaving a city and you see all the green, the mountains around it, the humans, all the houses, the road waves, it looks like a culture like a bacteria culture, like I'm not just saying, oh, the culture man, society, culture, a bacteria culture. That's literally what it looks like. Everything is a size of scale, and you can see the veins of our society, the roads that are running through, and that is what these satellites are. They are just microscopes looking upon everything that we've built. It's really cool if you just go look at the pictures of them. And the Hubble had no fuel in it. We kind of just put it up there in the 90s and we're like, it'll it'll probably float around. And so the CIA, even before then in the 80s, we were like, we need to do evasive purposes if someone tries to attack these satellites. So they have also a range of 400 miles. So like one of the satellites, if it's geo-positioned over Moscow, it could just shift over 400 miles and go people what's happening over like St. Petersburg and all that. And that wasn't even part of NASA's budget. The NASA budget in 2019 is $8.8 billion, which is less than a half of 1%. The point there, though, is like NASA's budget doesn't matter because the Hubble telescope wasn't even paid for by NASA. It was paid for by the CIA because we really needed it up in the sky <laughs> that year uh, because China was putting up whatever their telescope was. I don't remember the name of it. I think we have it a little bit later on. But there's always this dark slush fund that the CIA has that can pay for 30 times over of what NASA's allotted budget is. So they just kind of got to suck up to the CIA if they want to do some sort of big project. And nobody really cares about this. There were $21 trillion of unanswered Pentagon funds since 1998. Think about this. The national debt is at $22 trillion. So in the past 20 years since 1998... We just lost track of $21 trillion. Our debt would be gone if we kept track of our money. I sound like an annoying broker, like your stockbroker telling you, we got to save, we got to invest. But we're if we're America, if we're a team and we're all throwing hours of our stupid job tax money at the same cause, let's at least know where $21 trillion are going please. And we have a $22 trillion debt. It's so dumb, man. And so we're going to get into a war with China because we didn't keep track of our money. 
Anyway, $1.3 trillion were approved for 2019. So in 2019, we're giving $1.3 trillion to the Pentagon. And remember the NASA budget is $8.8 billion? $1.3 trillion this year going to the Pentagon. Yeah, just think about this as a business, guys. America was the fastest growing biggest business, and now we just spend more, go into more debt, start more wars every year. Trump, I don't know, we're not going there. (laughs) We ain't going there, people. I'm just saying we should be smarter with our money. Uh, And then, like, in 2018, the CIA couldn't account for another $300 Like, what is that, dude? (laughs) There's no accountability. And then in this book, the name of this chapter was Detection Stories. Where's the Edward Snowden detection story? The biggest story that will be in any legitimate history book in 100 years. Neil doesn't talk about that. Instead, we're talking about shooting lasers at cows 100 yards away. All right, I need to get back to base, people. Get back to base. And then we got a new chapter. So as far as we know, the James Webb, which is the Hubble's replacement, doesn't have any sort of doppelgangers, but I'm sure in another 40 years we'll be told about some other sort of satellite that's been up there. And then we'll get to use the James Webb when it's old enough. But for now, we're not important enough to look at cool pictures of space. So when I'm 70 years old and I'm doing this, hopefully I'll be able to read about the new pictures from the new satellite. And that's going to take us to the end of our detection stories. We only got three chapters left, people. Okur, okur. Chapter 7 out of 9. Making war, seeking peace. The point of this chapter being how our military claims not to engage with people. But if they engage with us, we will wipe them off the face of the planet. Uh, Neil talks about how like we got lasers and a bunch of other cool stuff. He goes into rules of engagement and how there shouldn't be any wars in space, theoretically. In the time of war, cyberspace will most likely be used against an empire because you just have to generate disruptive impact. That's um, like when people were going against the British crown as like an American revolutionary or uh, the Arab Spring, how... Libya was able to have a revolution, which we are not allowing anymore. The point is, if there is an empire, you're not going to be able to take it on militarily head-on. Just like the Vietnamese, you have to use guerrilla warfare. You have to generate a disruptive impact. And so, most likely, that's going to be done against our satellites via cyberspace or hacking. And so, we see this even literally within the past couple weeks. The yellow jacket protesters in france whatever they call themselves disruption is very bad for an empire america wouldn't even cover it in the media for the first month it was going on and then it got too big and cnn had to put a story out about it and now it's spreading to the uk and so some of these attacks might look like whereas if we were to go against another real war opponent like a first or second world country they would try to send us back pre-satellites or just by frying everything above our airspace uh so we wouldn't have like satellites roadmaps weather no power grid do you think you could live like that i think i could but it would stink there's 1700 satellites in low earth earth orbit today and a half of those are american and only like a 40th of those are military so we have a lot of the stuff up there for people to disrupt and you could see a lot of that coming if people had the incentive to really mess with us that much but in 2016 china launched their first quantum satellite 
first ever quantum satellite in space, of course, that Neil or any of us are able to know about. The quantum computer is inside the satellite, and it means that it can transfer information instantaneously. So it can't be hacked. That's like the biggest thing here. Quantum computing, I'm not going to pretend to know how this works, but like it works on the quantum scale, which is where two things can exist at once. Something can exist in the same place as somewhere else at the same time. And so like this, this quantum satellite can communicate with a quantum computer that's in that underground Chinese lab. But then wouldn't you think America could just put a bug in that lab? You know, you don't have to get the information at the satellite. Just get it a little bit after that. <laughs> I don't know if it's that easy, though. <laughs> and so now China says that things as high as military plans to pet food purchases can be purchased and then encrypted through that satellite. Whereas everything that's done over us, like our tax information and social security numbers are hacked by everybody. Remember that commercial where the guy drove around New York City with his social security number plastered on the side of a truck? That like came back to bit him in his ass and his identity got stolen like five times from it. And he had to like get a new scene. He's like the first person in American history to get a second social security number. I don't think that second part is true, but it'd be funny if it was. <laughs> and so while we're going to be trying to put all these new satellites up, Neil was talking about how there's already a dust in low Earth orbit of just space junk. And he compared it to the size of the Texas-sized garbage island. So in the next hundred years, unless we start doing stuff a little bit cleaner, like SpaceX's with reusing rocket boosters there's just going to be a lot of garbage we're going to have to be avoiding somehow chapter takes a little bit of a turn here now talking about seeking peace instead of i don't know the chapter was supposed to be about seeking peace but there was some interesting stuff about war in the 1700s and how they were using scientists back then Prussian Clausewitz wrote about launching diseased corpses at enemies. Common one we'd hear about that. They even knew that in like the 1500s with the bubonic plague. Just get those disgusting people over someone else's city walls. But other ones they would do is either launch or leave beehives in the way of enemies, plant toxic honey or fruits on their walking routes. So like by the time the guys got to battle, they were all having bowel issues those are all just like non-biological or kinetic weapons which are the big ones neil his pompous ass way of just saying weapons that deliver force whether it's a fist or a friggin rifle or a missile now we have like direct energy weapons which is not kinetic not biological not even a projectile it's just like frying an enemy from far away like, you could do that if you put a direct energy weapon on a satellite. You could shoot it at someone's water purifying plant in another country. You know they can't purify their water for the rest of the war. That was Neil's example. So I wouldn't have thought of that. That's kind of a sick mind you got there, Neil, but it's going to work. I want you on my side. Until the space age, everything was dependent on mass and speed to do the damage. You know, with those kinetic weapons like cannons, you have to see somebody and they had to be within a mile range. But now... It's as long as you can deliver a chemical reaction. So as long as I have an ICBM that can get over to India, I could blow up the Taj Mahal. I don't know why. I don't even want to do that. I'm just saying that you, as long as you can get something from point A to point B, you can destroy it because now we have the technology. 
It's a whole new age of war. And then a couple hundred years ago in that age of the microwave radiation and everything, there was a challenge the English government put on to see who could turn eight pints of water to 98 to 100 degrees or just kill a sheep from 100 yards away. But you have to use a laser. So this guy named Wilkins wins and suggests that they put this on boats to shoot down planes. No shit, buddy. Why'd you think the contest started in the first place? And so if you look at really really cool videos online it's called laws it looks like a giant camera and it's a um it's a laser a direct energy weapon that we have on our naval ships currently it looks like a camera and the wikipedia videos it will like very quickly zoom over and track an incoming missile and then just radiate it and they destroy in midair. There's a really cool video on Wikipedia. They do like a catapult launched drone and this big ass laws system. It goes zooms into the fucking drone and incinerates it in midair. It just turns into flames and you're like, what the hell? It doesn't even shoot anything at it. It looks like black magic. It's just making stuff blow up from miles away it can do it in the video it was only like 100 yards away but damn bruh it's crazy and then the dod uh cited time frames in the 2020s we're gonna release aircrafts with 60 to 150 kilowatt lasers that's right baby we about to see fighter jets with lasers on them welcome to the future i'm into it i'm into planes with lasers on it sign me up neil degrasse for like half a chapter here had a boner for carl sagan which was the original host of the cosmos show original science communicator back in the 80s he made a really good point though sagan relayed here saying how there's over sixty thousand nuclear warheads and less than 2500 cities with more than a hundred thousand people a that's just like there's no need for that but um i mean i'm not going to try to get an analogy or anything there's just no need for it and carl sagan says even if our laser shield system which is what we use to shoot down enemy icbms even if that was 90 percent effective the u.s still would not exist after an attack but just because there are so many nuclear warheads that'd be coming at us that we wouldn't be able to stop all of them at once and so this is a little bit of a dark one here. Neil goes into how after 9-11, the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, the budget was pulled from the Pentagon because during the 9-11, the Pentagon was in command of the SDI. So when the military jets were flying by the airliners that were going towards the towers, you can listen to the clipped audio of the CIA talking to the pilots. The pilots are going, is this a drill? Can we engage? Is this a drill? What's going on? Can we engage? And then the CIA just, (laughs) and the CIA was like, yeah, drill, drill, let it go, fly away. But since they dropped the ball on that one, now the SDI funds have been allotted to the Department of Defense. So, I don't know who's running that thing. I guess I gotta get back into the whole politics game now. It's like a friggin' TV show, man. I don't wanna read about Donald Trump every day. (laughs) And so the uh, Department of Defense has some cool stuff Neil talked about for, like, Armageddon plans or, like, Deep Impact, the movies, where you would have to 
use a nuke to not really destroy an asteroid because if we did what they did in that movie it would just be a giant <laughs> rainstorm of asteroids you actually have to try to create a shockwave to push the asteroid away from not hitting earth rather than just making a big mess i mean i like the mess better for a movie though made for a much cooler scene and then the easiest and cheapest way to destroy an enemy satellite is delivering a nuke from an aerial vehicle still but that still runs the same risk of damaging your own satellites because putting a nuke in earth orbit is just messy that's why lasers are supposed to be the big game changer in that realm so now we know that we can kill each other whenever we want, from wherever we want, as hard as we want. We'll talk about Eisenhower here, how he said, Men who have worked together to reach the stars are less likely likely to descend to the depths of hell together. It's a good quote. And in the same breath, Khrushchev of the Soviet Union says, The Soviet Union is turning out ballistic missiles like sausages. <laughs> So no matter how uh, advanced one side is thinking at any time, you're always trying to negotiate with another side. And then in uh, 1978, there was that anti-ballistics missile treaty, and Reagan found a little loophole in there for the U.S. to use, and we tested a few nukes in low-Earth atmosphere. And our, I think those were the Castle Bravo tests, they called. And our justifications were that it doesn't go against the test ban treaty because the while the weapons started on earth and exploded in space they're considered ground weapons so we weren't actually testing anything that was unallowed which is dumb because then we invade iraq for doing the same thing <laughs> uh, in 1981 paros the prevention of an arms race in outer space which said no nukes on satellites was signed and then um we were the first ones to pull out of that bad boy in 1992 so maybe we got nukes in space because why else then wouldn't we abide to that? Also in 1981, we ramped up U.S. Strategic Defense Initiative, which was again the SDI, which then the Department of Defense funded after 9-11. But this was still before, so the Pentagon had all this money. And in 1981, they ramped up the disinformation campaign in the Soviet Union. So we've been spamming their fake news and influencing their elections since 1981. That is a fact you will never hear CNN say. You will never hear them say that fact. Because they're literally using that tactic right now to try to get us to cry about collusion. Which isn't even a crime. They're playing you like a damn guitar. To finish up this chapter, Neil goes over the space rules from this uh, treaty that we signed. It basically goes, number one... You can't put any nukes and satellites in space. Article number two, you can't own any part of the moon because they knew we were about to try to do that. Number three, the UN laws apply in space. So Guantanamo Bay, you can't just open one up on the moon. You're not allowed to torture people out there. And then number four, it was again no nukes in space. They made rule number four the same as rule number one. So I guess it was a repetitive treaty and that's why we pulled out. In 1962, Starfish Prime was, okay, I'm sorry, it was not Castle Bravo, it was Starfish Prime. My uh, nuke testing knowledge is messed up. <laughs> Such a waste of knowledge. <laughs> That's a waste of prime brain real estate. 
1962, Starfish Prime was the U.S. nuke test. Uh, was 250 miles in Earth's atmosphere, and it was a hydrogen bomb that wiped out half a dozen U.S. satellites. And so we were like, oops, we're going to need lasers to take down enemy satellites because if we do nukes up there, it'll probably affect our own stuff. And it also showed an effect on the Van Allen radiation belt that protects us from gamma rays. So we were like, uh, you guys might get sunburns in Arizona for a little while, but that wasn't our fault. So we're probably going to stop putting nukes in our atmosphere. So that's good. We had to learn the hard way through Starfish Prime. <laughs> had a cool name, at least. In um, 1957, NATO signed the Massive Retaliation Clause, which basically means if any country declares war on a NATO country, then everybody else is going to retaliate against that outer NATO country. So this is potentially, you could say, what stops Putin from invading Poland right now. But it's also what almost started World War III when he was trying to take over Crimea. So that little treaty is maybe outdated and could get us in some trouble. And to end this chapter, Neil goes on playing his harp of science, the ISS being such a good start to making militaries work together. They see the world for what it is rather than how we're taught it is as a map with borders. Framing, framing, framing. So when you're working up in space with another military member, you see, hey, we could just work to a goal together rather than being told our goal is to kill each other. Yeah, pretty pretty easy to say. Alrighty, so this is chapter 8, Space Power, second to last chapter. As you know, in nonfiction books, the last chapter is kind of where... The author just flexes their <laughs> hypothesis statement a bunch and tries to leave some really cool quotes, which Neil definitely does, but this is one of the last chapters of Real Substance. Chapter 8, Space Power, is mostly about spending and our satellites and the next generation that's going to be going up and how the ISS is um, kind of good for us, but the next big space dogs are China because they have their own ISS going up soon. So China is acknowledged as a space power and has the most launch sites and wants to be the main power in space moving forward, they have said. We have a quote here. This is our science and morality quote. Space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or new terrifying theater of war. So we're saying we need to get out there first so we can usher everybody into the space age and show them that this isn't going to be a dangerous place because only we have the nukes up there, you know? <laughs> but China is saying that they want to be the first ones to be taking reins of space, and it's becoming very evident. We have a wide range of what the Department of Defense considers needed to be defended, and the five Ds, you ready for the five Ds? <laughs> It's deception, disruption, denial, degradation, and destruction. Any of that carried out against the United States, the Department of Defense says. So degradation, if you say something bad about the United States government, they can come after you. Denial, if you deny any of the stories they tell you, they can come after you. There's some scary stuff that they're preaching there, but that's what we want space to be like. So how wide is the range of defense for like the air force 
do they want us to include stopping other countries from putting weapons in space? And the answer is yes. So what are we going to do? Blow up a Chinese satellite rocket that's about to put up another kinetic kill satellite or something like that? It gets really hairy. You have to decide what treaties you want to abide to, like they said earlier in the book. It's all a big chess game. And this really brings the question just like how far can you blur the line of self-defense? <laughs> by shooting other people's stuff hey he had a gun across the street so i had to kill him before he was gonna kill me with his gun across the street doesn't make sense and so we kind of have an answer to this conundrum of what happens when another country decides to put a weapon into space kind of like the conundrum that started the book what happens when a russian satellite crashes into usa satellite and the answer there was nothing and so here in 2015 China actually put a laser in space that they said would be used to beam down old satellites in orbit. And the USAF generals were like, all right, space is pretty much just going to be a new theater of war because we did nothing to stop them. So China does have a laser in space, which they're saying they're going to just use when they need to vaporize old stuff. But the point being, even when bad stuff does go down, we usually just result to compliance which is like how they said uh, World War II started with Hitler. We just kept giving him stuff, appeasement. A little later on now, we'll talk about in 1991, uh, a B-52 launched from Louisiana. This is in 1991. The B-52 launched from Louisiana and delivered 35 GPS cruise-guided missiles in Iraq. So they fucking flew across the Atlantic for like 12 hours and then blew up some people and they just landed. And um, this is also when like the Pavlo and the, and the Apache combination of having two different types of vehicles covering each other started. Yeah, just some cool military advancements here. If you want to read the book, it's they go in depth about all that. And so now we are using the Keyhole satellite system, those 20 different position satellites. And these were originally put up for the Gulf War. And so now Americans are stuck with the old janky-ass Navstar GPS. And 6 out of 16 of them are actually old research and development parts that they use scrapped together. And then one of them malfunctioned two months before launch. And then the current military ones are able to track down to the nearest centimeter Whereas the Navstar that we use as for like lift and GPS, it seems are a couple blocks off every single time. Nah, but the Navstar, they say it's up to like a few meters of accuracy. But the next gen the military has right now is like you can track something to the centimeter and it will find it for you. So maybe we're looking at chipped golf balls in the future. Satellites are going to be playing golf with us. In 2003, military set up their new next-gen satellites, and then they planned to launch the first two of Generation 3 satellites by SpaceX. So we're contracting third-party companies now to put up military satellites, which is pretty interesting. Also goes to show, like Uber and Lyft, that private businesses can get things done better than government a lot of times. I've heard it said in Denver, the RTD, the bus system is so bad provided by the government that, you know, people resort to Uber. We just drive each other around. And that's our tax money going to run these buses. And we're all just using Uber. So where's that money going, homie? Anyway, now that these new 
Generation 3 satellites are being put up by SpaceX. I wonder when we are going to be due for an upgrade as the civilians. Probably not for another 25 years. <laughs> so uh, all this time, Europe has zero military satellites. They just use the U.S.'s, which I thought was pretty cool. Not cool. I mean, they're not pulling their weight, obviously. It's like everything with NATO. We're just funding the crap out of it. Nobody else actually gets involved. So for the next 100 years or so, space warfare will most likely only take place in near-Earth orbit. That's because... I don't know how to go about this without breaking some people's heart. But the Columbia and the Challenger program in the 80s found out that you can't go past the Van Allen radiation belt. This is like several thousand miles of radiation that helps protect the Earth. When the um, Columbia program went up, the astronauts all reported seeing like white lights flashing in front of their closed eyes the further they got and the men started to go blind and like some of the women got radiation sickness and stuff like that and this is in the columbia you would recognize this space shuttle it's the big ass rocket the orange rocket with what looks like a big glider strap to the back and this is the shuttle we used after Apollo. So Apollo is the one where they did the moon missions, they say. And then the Columbia is where <laughs> the one that exploded that everybody watched on national TV. And so they've never made it out of low Earth orbit for 60 years now, apparently, since we went to the moon. And so we had that Columbia mission for 22 years. We were trying to get out of the Van Allen radiation belt. And we don't know how to like keep the cabin enclosed enough to get outside of near earth orbit and so that's most likely where all of the warfare is going to take place and that's kind of why trump you know wants to do this whole space force thing because if we have hover takeoff f-35s when you're outside of earth's gravity then you could just hover around space and that's going to be a lot more helpful than a plane that's only able to go off of drag <laughs> and forward momentum because drag isn't going to do anything for you in space. There's no air. Let's make a space force. I'm down for that. Next up in August of 2016. So now this is like pretty much end of the book. He's setting the stage of where we are now. In August of 2016, China launched Mikeus, the first quantum satellite, which we talked about, it uses the fiber optics to relay quantum information in phones. So no matter what distance you are, it could be as far away as Mars, the information is received immediately. Um, I read this other book, I'll probably do a review of it one day, called Future Physics by Michio Kaku, that guy on the Science Channel with the crazy hair, the white crazy hair. He looks like the classic crazy scientist. And he talks about how with like quantum computing, we would be able to one day beam our consciousness across the galaxy or the cosmos as far as we want because with quantum computing you don't have to travel anywhere it's just like duplicating your information and putting it over there so if you could upload your consciousness and then you could just beam it from one place to another and that's when we start getting down into like string theory binary code and how this is all a big old simulation if you believe that and I'll read some more books on that, but let's get through this accessory to war. If you guys are making it through this episode, you are absolute troopers, and I love you. Loving you for it. In January 2018, India delivered a nuclear warhead to a target 5,000 miles away, and they were just starting to build satellites, even though they've only done launching thus far. 
I guess that's why I mentioned blowing up the Taj Mahal before this was on my mind. India has been launching other people's satellites for years. There was a story in the book about how in 2013, Canada came over to India and we're like, hey, can you, uh, can you launch this satellite for us on the low? And the whole world was like, yo, what are they putting in space? And it turned out to be this thing called Sapphire. It wasn't even a military satellite. And it just looks out and maps space junk. <laughs> so Canada's just up there being the friendly neighbor, like taking notes of where all the flying nuts and bolts are up there that are going to kill us all. So hopefully China has a friendly neighbor like Canada over on that side. That's India is their friendly neighbor. But India now wants to put their own communication satellites up for things like national education systems and Bollywood as well. They want to really be able to broadcast their entertainment system. And if that means I can go on popcorn time and watch some free Bollywood, I will finance the Indian government for that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're interested... And you want a copy of this book, he goes into the order of all the countries and when they launched their satellites and who has the capabilities to. He had a really cool quote about uh, the 1946 war consolation and how Japan was not allowed in space. Because when we made them surrender in 46 and sign that thing, it's like we resigned from everything that could potentially be construed as war forever as a country until the end of planet Earth. And so then in, like, the 80s, we were like, all right, you can have a space program. So they have JAXA now, which is the Japanese NASA, and they have been extremely helpful with the ISS and all that. And this was a really interesting part of the book. Neil deGrasse kind of goes into the fact how Russia is off the block. They are not really a threat for us when it comes to space power. It's a crumbling nation. If you've seen emigration rates of Russia in the past, like, couple decades, it's scary. People are just leaving that country. Nobody's staying there. And you know those numbers are probably even less than the government will let the rest of the world think is true. Even where like I live and work, there are a ton of Russian immigrants. And I'm like, is this pre-invasion for World War III? Should I be afraid? But um, yeah, that's xenophobic. I'm kidding. Russian people are pretty dope. <laughs> anyway, they shouldn't be a military threat to us, though. In 2013 to 2016, their space budget went from $5 billion to $1.4 billion. So they're not even, like, trying that hard anymore. They cut back on the space thing. And we, that's not even a conceivable idea in America. We don't stop spending money anymore. We're like the teenage girl. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> they actually um, cut spending, yeah. Yeah, they actually did that. So in 2015, Russia was responsible for half of the re resupplies to the ISS and had two failed launches, which in today's day and age, if you're not doing something new like SpaceX trying to reland your old launchers, a failure is like, dude, what are you doing? You can't even launch a rocket now? My little cousin can do that in his fourth grade bottle rocket class. So we had to bail Russia out of their contributions to the ISS, so they're not even really paying for it that much anymore. We just really want them to be involved so that we have like geopolitical leverage saying, hey, we're working together in space, let's be nicer to each other. It's kind of like just a dying marriage with Russia, and uh, they used to be hot and steamy, and now we're just like dying together. <laughs> China, they're, they're working out, though. They're getting strong, let me tell you. Science is what piggybacks on geopolitics. Some scientists say that no real science gets done on the ISS, and that could be possible, being that it's 
all funded by geopolitics like we also learned in this book nasa's budget is only as big as the pentagon slush fund is that year and how much they want to give extra to science (laughs) but you know they want to we nasa wants to be able to look really close at the rings of mars and the cia wants to turn those satellites down at moscow so they can read a uh, bill over someone's shoulder and then there's a decent amount of politics about how the u.s buys russians photon rockets which uh started in the 80s we've been trading with them so throughout the cold war however cold it is as long as as long as military contractors can make each other rich on both sides that's what they've been doing buying these rocket engines and so Russia said that they want to end their agreement to the ISS contributions in 2020, but we are not going to let them out until 2024. We got them to sign back up. And then the plan after that is just to let the ISS crash up and burn into Earth's atmosphere because it ran its course. And then we also found out that the Soyuz space cap- capsules up to the ISS, the Russian capsules they designed, so we have to pay for our tickets up to the ISS through them. And guess how much a ticket is? Just around $82 million for a round-trip ticket to the ISS. <laughs> they have a monopoly on the trip to get up there. It's not fair. And now... the. U.S. is trying to get China involved in the ISS so that, you know, for geopolitical reasons, and it looks like that we're doing something up in space that other countries aren't, keeps us, it's all about image, man. We want to be the first world country, not a first world country. And so something interesting Neil brought up was the Berlin Wall fell the same year as the Tiananmen Square massacre. And you know, if you if you type Tiananmen Square into a computer in China, they'll send you to a work camp. But halfway around the world, we're tearing down the Berlin Wall, making two super powerful countries come together. And so hopefully if they have some more freedom of information in China, they won't propagandize against America and we can all get along. And we can all get along. And then Neil finishes Space Power saying that the Department of Defense and the Defense Advanced Research Projects, DARPA, money is now mostly being funneled into direct energy weapons. Lasers. We're going to put a freaking laser on the moon, baby. That's right. Dr. Evil was right. (laughs) That's where it's all going. Neil deGrasse is right. He sees where the money is going in science. And we are building lasers Final chapter, A Time to Heal. You're probably asking, Nick, this is the last chapter. What about the moon? Where are those lasers on the moon? It's 2020. Shouldn't we have moon bases and stuff like that? So I think that is a valid point. What about the moon? It's, It's the biggest satellite that's out there. It's the biggest thing that orbits our Earth and that we are able to see with our naked eyes and have been able to see for thousands of years. And I think it's even more impressive than the fact that there's a moon that Neil was able to write a 400 page book about the military in space and not acknowledge the fact that the military went to the moon. And that's right, we're about to go deep. Uh, Neil opens his final chapter, quote, On July 21, 1969, the day the New York Times banner headline read, 
Men walk on moon. Astronauts land on plane. Collect rocks. Plant flag. The admired historians of cities and technology, Lewis Mumford, was disgusted. Picasso was completely uninterested. Charles Lindenberg, the Dalai Lama, (laughs) Arthur Miller, and Pablo Picasso. Some were enthusiastic, some were ambivalent, some were uninterested, and some were completely disgusted. I don't know, man. That shit I was talking about, the Challenger, before. I'm open to all these things. I try not to identify with a position because I just want to be open to the information. I saw a pretty damn crazy documentary recently. It was called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. And it kind of confirms all your worst intuitions that you have about this faulty story that we're being fed. And then on the next page, uh, Neil talks about how the moon landing was not good for social services. And he was not a fan of the Apollo missions. He actually comes out right and says. It's like, why, man? You work for the military industrial complex and the government. And you are supposed to be the biggest proponent of space exploration. And you are dissenting the the biggest mission that the U.S. Space Force is known for. Like, I, I don't, there's no way to... I can't be crazy for having cognitive dissonance about this, that this is the main astrophysicist in our time, and he won't just say our trip to the moon was useful and we should be going back there because it's 2020 and we have the technology. But then he went on to talk about how Columbia astronauts couldn't even go more than a few hundred miles outside of Earth's orbit and then wrote chapters about how we can only get into near-Earth orbit and that's how we're going to be for the next couple hundred years. Neil thinks that instead of doing stuff like um, Apollo, we should have been spending monies on, like we were talking about before, um, Armageddon-type asteroids because asteroids um, are also a big profitable thing as long as they're not going to hit us. Asteroids form from big rocks hitting into planets, so they scoop off other planets. So if you are an asteroid that's going to hit Earth, you might scoop some water off and you can have tardigrades and other animals that are just alive in the vacuum in space but then if an asteroid comes and hits earth at its metal core because a lot of planets have just gooey metal at the core take earth for example it's made of a lot of nickel at the core if an asteroid hit us there would be a giant nickel asteroid flying through the vacuum of space and so if there's another planet with a heart of gold with like a molten gold at the core then there is very well going to be like titanium or gold or iridium he was saying a bunch of types of asteroids that are going to be extremely profitable so asteroid mining is going to be like one of the biggest gangster things you could do it's going to be a gold rush you remember those old jimmy neutron episodes where him and goddard were just whipping around and shoveling gold off of asteroids That's going to be a cool new job in the future. A time to heal. Neil's talking about USA has, we had good wars over the past hundred years. So like America has a really big inflated ego right now because we haven't had any bad wars. Um, Vietnam was kind of shielded from us and we still, people wear garments that say back to back world war champs referring to like 60 million dead people and countries, people dying for a cause they were convinced was going to be worthwhile. So not only did we quote-unquote win those wars, no one ever wins a war, bro. Everybody freaking loses. 
but since we won those, they also weren't on our home turf. So it wasn't since like the wars in the 1800s where it was the Civil War or the War of 1812 where the White House was getting burned to the ground and people's property in the United States was getting affected. We don't know what a war is. We've been so removed from it from so long. So we're, we got a big ego right now. He also says how we used to test nukes in the desert, but now with supercomputers, we can make designer bombs. And so before you even detonate this bomb, you can choose what the temperature and form it'll be like, the explosion, the, the uh, shock wave, the firebomb, all of that is customizable. And so like fireworks used to just be little firecrackers that were invented in China. Now you can go to the south and get your tube twisters, your double vads, your tinger tangers, your... <laughs> Your busy whips, your skizzy narps, your sparkle garkles, your thumb crackles, your big bertha, your wang now gone, all that shit, man. Now we can make these designer nukes. In 2017, we, uh, I mean, it was probably around before, but it says we booted up the Trinity supercomputer, which is 14 times more powerful than anything we've had since 2010. And so we're, you know, we're testing out what bombs could be like, what potential societies could be like moving forward in that supercomputer. Bill Maher says, we are already turning the final frontier into the New Jersey Meadowlands, referring to all the space debris. And he's not wrong. We've only been a couple hundred miles outside of our atmosphere and is already full of junk. It's not good. Um, Neil's like having a little anxiety about about how would someone even declare a space war? Like, when would you win? When would it be over? Is it just over when you destroy everyone else's satellites? Or is it like a nuclear war where there is no winner, it's just mutual destruction? Where, okay, we're both living in the 90s again, cool. Neil talks about some other potentially inhabitable planets, which are kind of cool. We have discovered, so if uh, the whole world wanted to work on one goal... I think it'd be pretty good to be a multi-planetary species just so we don't die forever. <laughs> like 99.999999% of all species of life in this universe that just get snuffed out by the cold vacuum of space. Hopefully we'll be smart enough not to do that to each other and get past it. And on the last page here of Accessory to War by Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, he refers to our budget. And how $600 billion, which is 54% of our GDP, is going to the military-industrial complex. Which, if you work a minimum wage job, that is 30 minutes of work a day goes straight to the military. And that's not even like the military guys in the barracks. That's going to people that are buying weapons, mercenaries, black ops units, all that type of stuff. Weapons deals. Shady shite that I'm working 30 minutes a day for. <laughs> That's $600 billion we spend on defense compared to the world spends $1.5 We spend like more than half of the entire world budget, which I'm sure you've hold that one before. Neil also says on the last page that why don't we take a few of those billions and fix the New York City subways, make sure New Orleans doesn't flood again, make the Museum of Modern Art free, this is where he records his show, 
star talk they do an open forum at the museum of modern art so i guess he just wants some more fans to come out to his show because nobody's paying but he's right man let's just make that free admission instead of buying another jdam missile this year and he says don't think of these things like they were imaginary because they are true so this chinese laser these nuclear bombs all these things are not just cool science fiction that I was overwhelming your brain with for the past couple hours. This is real stuff. So think about it. It's true. So think about it. And then the final message, his quote he has from a science march saying, think while it's still legal. Pretty ominous. Another creepy thing he said. And then one of my other favorite quotes from this book was, From Abraham Lincoln, Neil deGrasse Tyson quoted, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? You're destroying them all, right? But you're just turning them into something different, something more useful. And that is the end of our review and interpretation to Neil deGrasse Tyson's accessory to war. A lot of information there, a lot of stuff to take in moving forward about the world and our position in it. And I hope you guys enjoyed the show. We have a little bonus section coming up. We're going to do a Would You Rather, some information about our book next week, and then a few final words, and then we'll be out of here. One of the longest urinations of my life. That was straight coffee. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you guys for sticking around, whoever is. Um, That was a bit of a longer go at it than I thought we would do. It was a really long book as well with a ton of information. Neil deGrasse Tyson is someone that I look up to just from a work perspective. The dude's always grinding. He's a little bit of a pompous douchebag, and his writing shows that a little bit. It's... um, little beefed up just like with extra words i'm trying to read a book that's down to the bones that's why i don't like fiction as much because it's people trying to dress their words up in pretty garments but fiction's supposed to be down to the point and so hopefully you guys took something cool out of that and this next section is our would you rather and it's coming straight out of the book of questions nice little christmas present i got this year And I figured I'd share it with all you guys in a nice little bonus section. If you're listening to this podcast in sections, as I suggest that you probably do, because it is a marathon, it's looking like not a sprint. Definitely feel free to share this little part with a friend or let me know what you think about it. So our question this week is, would you rather have no computers, no telecommunications, and no motorized vehicle or you lose a hand or you lose a damn hand so this is a true man versus machine question i see it as and i think the vehicle is the big decider here because as long as i can still get chauffeured around like think about it if they're saying you can't use a motorized vehicle that's basically throwing you back into the 1800s you know 
I mean, obviously, you can't use a computer. You're back in, like, the 90s. You can't use a telephone. All right, maybe you're back in the 1920s, like a real schlub. But if you can't use a motorized vehicle, I can't think, I can't take a train. I can't take a airplane to get halfway across the country. What do you, what do you have to do to, for the rest of your life? Are you going to be a... a <laughs> a horseback policeman and you know they probably don't deal with any computers anyway because they don't want to do any paperwork so that's probably the perfect job honestly that might be the answer to this would you rather let's think about it from the other side so obviously if if the vehicle thing is you're not even allowed to ride in a vehicle i'm going with the one hand because i'm not going to be driving down the freeway in a covered wagon like I'm in the 1800s. I'd be able to mush my horse with a nice firm two-handed whip, but I'm going to look like an asshole. And uh, the big thing in these would-you-rathers is do people know the scenario? So if I'm just like some guy who's not using technology and people don't know, they're going to be like, what is wrong with this guy? Why isn't he just going with the flow? Can't he use a cell phone? Why does he have to act like he's better than everyone? Then you go with the one hand. But then again, if people know the scenario and you go with the one hand, then they're like, ew, that guy cut his hand off just so he could use his iPhone. You know, you look petty either way. So I think it's better if you keep the would you rather hidden and then go with the one hand. That way you look like a hero just because as a white guy, you can't play the adversity card ever. You have the perfect upbringing. Everything to your life has been absolutely perfect until this conversation with a female or a minority happens. You are just at that advantage, disadvantage as a white male. So if you cut your hand off for this thing, you're getting a perk. Otherwise, you're just the white guy without a TV or a phone, which is even more of a hipster asshole. (laughs) So I think overall, my plan is going to be no tech. Because you can't just be the guy who uses no tech without a religious excuse. And then people have to know the conditions. So the one hand, the one hand is the answer, ladies and gentlemen. You could still make a living. Actually, I don't know. I honestly don't, I haven't made up my mind because look at what I do or want to do for a living. It involves like technology and stuff. (laughs) But would I be able to do all that without one hand? Obviously, that's why I'm going with the one hand. Yeah, I I just convinced myself again. It wasn't that hard to. My convincing evidence, though, is that I know a kid that only had one hand. (laughs) And so if he was like, if he saw one day that I only had one hand, he'd be like, dude, you gave up your freaking hand for an iPhone. What the fuck? I would have taken yours. I was born without this thing. I read this other book called sex at dawn's just about evolving homo sapiens and we basically are already cyborgs think about like when your leg vibrates in the middle of the day and you just without even thinking you instinctually just reach down and grab your phone and check who it is that's already part of your brain it is wired in and like wearing a watch or i mean that's kind of and then when you check your timer on your phone just throughout the day, you are a cyborg. You're communicating with people through thin air. So it'd be definitely tough to give that up. But most people you talk to say life was better before you were a slave to this little device. But that can also just be the uh, happy days bias where people think the past is always better. And plus, this kid that this kid I know that has one hand, he went to like Bentley, a business college, and so his odds of winding up, uh, quote unquote, more successful than me, are much higher. 
and he wears his sign of adversary on his outside. So, like I'm saying, I'm not going to say it's a perk, but it might be a leg up in an interview as long as it's not a job where they expect you to type 100 words per minute. <laughs> and this this kid, guess what position he played on the high school soccer team? The one position that you need hands for in soccer. He was our goalie. Yep, he was our freshman year goalie. But I love that kid. He made me laugh many, many, many times on the soccer bus. And that's all you can ask for for someone. And I hope I was able to do that for you guys today for a little bit. Um, I hope I brightened up your month of January a little bit. I will be around for all of 2019 and hopefully years to come. This is the newest project that I will be working on hard to try to put out better content every single week for you guys. It's only getting better from here. So thank you for sticking it out, whoever chose around for a little party games. Next week, we are going to be talking Outliers, the story of success. Malcolm Gladwell. It's a classic. It's a New York bestseller. Going to be referred to as a classic. So if you don't want to have to read that book, definitely tune in next month because I will be reading it for you. You got to do nothing here. You just got to tune in, zone out, and activate that mind when you want. But I'm not requiring anything of you guys here. So once again, just thank you all for listening. If you want to get at me with with any sort of ideas for improvements, compliments, criticisms, seriously, I'm open to anything. Hit me on my DMs. You can find me, Nick Muniz, Mick Muniz, or just email me, nmuniz at udell.edu about the show. And I'm here for you guys. Thank you all for whoever decided to tune in. And I will see all your beautiful faces again next Talk to me, you can see what's going on.